This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 7, and the song lyric of the day is by Neil Young. I'm a child, I'll last a while, you can't conceive of the pleasure in my smile. You hold my hand, rough up my hair, it's lots of fun to have you there. God gave to you, now you give to me, I'd like to know what you learned. The sky is blue and so is the sea. What is the color when black is burned? What is the color? I'll be looking for you throughout the show. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration through conversations with world-class musicians. Welcome to Sound Heights Records, the podcast. This is Yisrael Aryeh, and we're very pleased today to present an interview that was done last summer with prolific guitar player, composer, and now record label owner John Madoff. Since we spoke last year, he's launched Chant Records which already has numerous artists and releases, and they've done concerts, and um, it's a pretty incredible endeavor. And he's a pretty incredible guy. We spoke for a long time in two different sessions, which I I put together into one long conversation, hope. You know, anyone who hangs through most of it, it's it's really, uh, I consider it really worthwhile. I mean, he tells his his whole backstory, um, a lot of some of his, uh, his triumphs and his challenges, um, his insights, we both connected on both being uh, Baal Tshuva, being returnees to religious Judaism, and of being a musician with a family, with the pleasures and responsibilities, struggles that go along with that. So as usual, this episode is brought to you by our lovely Patreon supporters. You can go and find out all about that at uh, patreon.com slash Sound Heights Records, where we're posting a lot of music in addition to these podcasts and special unreleased tracks and pre-released tracks for different levels of support. So here it is, our interview with John Madoff. So how'd you get started? Like, what was your, your, in your memory, what comes straight to mind when you think of your most powerful early musical memory or inspiration? Um... That's a good question. Uh, I was actually thinking about this the other day. For some reason, the the two songs that stick out to me that I first like really got into and noticed as music mm-hmm. was one was Safety Dance. <laughs> Do you oh, remember yeah. that song? Oh sure. By Men Without Hats. <laughs> that for me that that was like that that it was an early memory of mine too. That oh, was really? that was the, that was the first MTV video I saw. Oh, maybe that's what it was. Um, I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't know why it. I don't know. I love that, like uh, that synth sound at the beginning, and maybe it was the video. 
Um, it's a great, it's a really catchy tune. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, it's great. That guy's voice is great. Um, there was like a midget then, in the video or something, if I'm not mistaken. I'm just, that's yeah. just through like my, my yeah, five-year-old yeah, eyes or something. Right, right, right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, and, um, and then the other one was Wipeout. And I don't know where I heard Wipeout. I was probably a little bit older. But before I knew like what a blues progression was, hmm. I, I used to call it just in my head, I used to call it the Wipeout, the huh. Wipeout song. And like, I noticed that I thought other songs were doing like a takeoff on Wipeout. Uh-huh. And I didn't know what the one and the four and the five was in that 12 bar structure, but I knew that it was the same. Like I, I could like uh, tell what was going to happen because of Wipeout. Huh. <laughs> And then later learn that like it's all just coming from a blues progression, and it happens that that's what wipeout is. But um, yeah, so that's kind of my earliest my earliest memory of music. And um, my father plays the guitar. I, I play guitar as well. My mm-hmm. father plays. Um, he never played professionally, but he always had instruments around the house and has always been a real music enthusiast. And showed me things on the guitar when I was a kid. And that hmm. was my other memory was like him showing me stuff and watching him play. And he plays um, like acoustic finger style guitar. Huh. That was his thing. Like what, what would he, when he'd sit down to play, what would it, or what is he, what is his uh, repertoire? What is his thing? Um, his thing is like, uh, well, I remember not only what he was into. Well, so my, my dad and my mom are both real big music enthusiasts. My mm-hmm. mom is really into classical music and opera and would always have the opera on the radio. Uh-huh. And my dad is into like oldies. Okay. Like doo-wop and Dion and the Belmonts and okay. all that old, you know, the, you know this, stuff. John, you could be describing my parents as well. Really? My oh, father, my father also plays guitar. <laughs> really? Guitar. He's also into doo-wop and oldies. My mother loves that's classical. so funny. <laughs> yeah. where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Scarsdale. Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah. I live in White Plains. I know. I, I yeah. I, Did you grow up there? No, I grew up in Philadelphia. Outside Philadelphia. Oh, okay. That's really funny. That's so funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's great. Maybe that, maybe there's like a lot more of us running around. <laughs> like fits the, uh, fits exact, the profile. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and you grew up religious or not? No. No. no did, did you? No, okay. No, okay. Um, okay, so this is like a pattern. <laughs> All right. So he would so, he would play those oldies on the guitar. That, that would... yeah, he would a little bit. But the 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 where they connected was actually their first date was at the um, the Weavers reunion concert at Carnegie Hall. I think it was like sixty one or sixty two, sixty three, something like that. My parents that, that are probably a, there also. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. gonna, you know. So your parents were like folkies. Yeah. 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 So, exactly. so that's kind of where they connected. So when we would listen to music, like as a family, I remember it was like Phil Oaks and Pete Seeger, Buffy St. Marie, Joan Baez, right. yes. um, that stuff. But, but also my dad made it very clear that it was like, there was this whole other kind of folk music that was like commercialized folk music. And mm-hmm. he just was like, so against that. Okay. He's, you know, yeah. A purist. Yeah, like to him, like Peter, Paul, and Mary was like the biggest like sellout, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> which is a very like probably a very low bar for selling out because I don't think they're like that egregious. But he just would not; he was not into that, right? You know, so for them, folk music was like Phil Oaks and these old, um, older records and um, Woody Guthrie, and they were into Dylan, but like only to a point, right? Know? Right, just, uh, <laughs> I got <it. laughs> 
<laughs> I understand the relationship. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so that was kind of the, the background. And then I, um, I started, I got my first guitar when I was about 14 or 15 and I was into like, um, I guess by then I had started to discover like classic rock. Somebody gave me a Pink Floyd tape and then I soon, you know, somebody was like, oh, you know, you got to check out Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. And, and that was like the real guitar driven classic rock, which is like I was like a kid growing up in the suburbs. So that was what the kids were into. Um, and my best friend at the time, who was still a very close friend of mine, um, we really grew up together and we got into music together and started playing together and formed a band when we were 14 or 15. And, um, we did a lot with that band. We did a couple of tapes. We did a seven inch vinyl record. Hmm. Um, we didn't like, uh, ha I guess have anything that you could call like success in any kind of way, but that didn't matter. It didn't really matter to us. What was the band. name of that band? That band was called Babyhead. Babyhead, Cool. <laughs> yeah. And I heard somebody say the other day, I was listening to a podcast. They're like, oh yeah, your first band name, the, like the worst the worse your first band name is, like the longer you're gonna last, like in the long run. And I was like, that's oh, good. that's like I'm 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 good for the long haul. If that's the criteria, <laughs> right? We we, oh, I, we 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 had a renegade Muppet. Nice. I think I'm, I'm thinking we're up there in that in that category. That's great, absolutely. Um, and but there was like a real scene of of kids who were into music, and we would do these shows and like people's basements. And I didn't realize like what we were really doing was like DIY kind of, uh, ethos of putting on our own shows hmm. and all that stuff. And then soon through, through that experience and then meeting all these other musicians, I got into, um, I guess we called it punk back then, but now would be indie, um, like Fugazi. And, um, I personally was into like Fugazi and Jane's addiction and the pixies Mm. And, um, and, you know, n never like the real, like, uh, purest kind of punk or hardcore, even though I'm into some of that now, uh -huh. um, but you know, like sub pop and SST and those labels, mm. labels that were really like started by musicians, independent labels, mm -hmm. you know, and then that kind of became the badge that we wore of like, we, you know, we wouldn't be into anything corporate and, mm -hmm you know, all that stuff. So it was like about the ethos and, and, uh, you know, it was very adolescent, but it was a really formative time. Um, and that band baby had lasted for about like five years and into like the first or second year of college. And we were pretty serious by the end. Like we, you know, we wrote some music that I still listen to and, and, uh, we just, you know, we, we were into creating something real and writing mm -hmm. our own music and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Do you, you ever, uh, uh, so you have, you have, you still have tapes of those recordings. You, you still listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah, something, yeah. is that like, something you, you plan on, on releasing at any point or it's just for your personal, know. I don't know. Like um, a you wait, I, wait till a John Madoff retrospective. Or yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Like I, I feel personally that some of it holds up, but I don't know if that would be shared right. by other people and if other people would want to hear it. <laughs> Um, but it's very funny because um, WMYC had some contest a couple years ago for like the weirdest or the most creative um, song name. Okay. And they said you could upload it onto SoundCloud or something. So um, we actually, we had a song called Our Bassist is in Rehab. 
Okay. And because our bassist actually did, unfortunately, I mean, he's, he's doing great now, but at the time was, um, had some substance abuse issues and actually went to rehab. So we wrote a song about it and we used to play that uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, I uploaded that for, I didn't win, but I, okay. you know, I put that on <laughs> the, uh, for the WMYC contest a couple years ago. Is it, so it's, it's still out there? Yeah, I think, yeah. I'll have <laughs> to check that out. Um, and, um, I don't know if I would release it. I guess I'd have to get the permission of the other people. But like I said, the, um, the, the kind of, I mean, I'm in touch with all the people to, to one extent or another who were in that band, but the other singer or, or not the other singer that I, I, I just play guitar in that band cause I have a horrible mm-hmm. singing voice, but the, um, the, the two people who were the, the front people of the band, there, mm-hmm. there was a, a girl and a guy and the guy is, you know, I grew up with him and we've been friends since we were four and we actually have started playing music together again oh, cool. in the last couple of years, which is very cool. Um, and now I have to give him a shout out. So, because I'm talking about him, his name is Kevin McGoldrick and he's, uh, he lives in Nashville and he's actually a Catholic priest, Wow, which is like, you know, we were, um, I'll just tell you anecdotally, we, I played sure. down in Philly several years back and, and he and his brother and me and my brother were all very, very close and always hung out in high school and stuff. And I'm now from, and Kevin is a Catholic priest and we were standing outside after I played once in Philly and his brother just looked at the two of us and he said, <laughs> this, there, there's a punchline in here somewhere. You guys standing <laughs> out here, like being, <laughs> being old friends, but it's been really great. Like he's a, he's a really phenomenal singer songwriter and, uh, is doing some great stuff. Um, so, uh, I guess I should go on as far as the, yeah, <laughs> the sure. I mean, you know, you're, yeah, no, um, you, definitely interested. So, so you, after, but at that point you were playing, um, with Babyhead. you were making, you kind of, I mean, when you're talking about the whole punk aesthetic and the do it yourself thing, that was, that was mostly, you're talking about high school age or, or into college. You, you kept up with, um, with these same musicians or you, or did things? Um, well, actually as, um, the, the band kind of disbanded when Kevin went to seminary. So that was, um, I think it was sophomore year of college and by that sophomore or junior year, but mm-hmm. at that point I was already kind of like decided, um, that I wanted to learn how to play jazz. Okay. So that's like what I was listening to. That's what I was focused on. So I, I guess kind of like my, my heart wasn't necessarily in that music at that time that Babyhead was doing. Mm-hmm. So we kind of, you know, very, uh, in a friendly way decided that we were all going to go do, do our other things. Um, so I, I was kind of like super, super obsessive about learning how to play jazz hmm. for most of my college years. Um, I didn't go to school for music, although I went to a school that has a really great music program. Where so were I was you? able to, uh, it was at Oberlin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it has a conservatory there, and if you're in the college, especially at that time, the jazz department had only been around for like, f- I don't know, five, six, seven years. So you could kind of like, you know, become acquainted acquainted with the teachers, and they would let you into their classes. Um, and in the classical part of the conservatory, it was a little bit more formalized. Mm-hmm. So um, I started taking classes. I would join like ensembles of you know other kids that were not in the conservatory, but wanted to play jazz. And I just was playing all the time and learning. And, um, I originally, I wasn't 
good enough with the jazz stuff to study with the faculty teacher. So I studied with a couple students. You could pay them like five bucks mm -hmm. or 10 bucks <laughs> a lesson. It was amazing. And uh, that was really my formative like learning experience in jazz. Um, and then, so I was really into like, I was like, for, for lack of a better word, a jazz Nazi. Like okay. that's kind of what, like <laughs> what people called us. Um, uh, and for, you know, as, uh, as, uh, <laughs> as potentially offensive as that term is, um, that's kind of what we were. You, you can pull and, it off. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel it's kind of on the same level and in the same spirit as the soup Nazi. Right. Um, right. So it's a safe, um, it's a safe space. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> um, but I was just like, so, I mean, in retrospect, I think I had blinders on because I, hmm was so focused on learning this particular type of music and this particular style of playing that I really did like ignore all this other stuff that I was into. So what, um, what aspect of, of jazz were you getting deep into? Was it bebop? Was it uh, some more avant-garde? What, what was the, your, your focus that you were getting, you know, really into? Um, yeah. So th for, for some reason, I mean, I kind of started out learning about bop and playing standards and that, but I, I kind of like, like really honed in on Wes Montgomery and hmm. Jim Hall okay. as like my two, you know, I would like transcribe their solos and really was like, you know, trying to kind of imitate them. Mm -hmm. Basically it was like between those two. Cause they, I mean, they still are two of my favorite guitar players. I mean, I listen to so much other stuff now, mm -hmm. but um, that's kind of what I was focused on and really learning that like traditional repertoire of, of bebop really, but more, I guess more into like, hard bop and and like post bop you know whatever yeah. like it's like you know i feel like jazz is almost as crazy as metal in the way that they like break down you know the the, the genres right you know, the sure. sub genres and the sub sub genres um i think when you but, mentioned when you mentioned west montgomery i mean it, it's you know it already has its particular flavor i mean right it's just you know yeah that method i mean the, the, so were you um besides learning were you playing with a lot of musicians at the time were there guys around that were into what you were into that you were getting together with or just in the, college the students yeah there? yeah okay yeah yeah other students and um i mean a lot of it was in kind of um either like a class situation like in you know taking an improv class mm -hmm. but we had this great teacher named donald walden who you know his experience in jazz was he was a teacher but he was a player so like the class was like we're going to learn a bunch of songs and play them um, and, and he was a very stereotypical kind of jazz mentor and that he was very harsh on people. And if you, you know, compliments by him were like very hard one. And I remember finally, after like two years in his class, he finally was like, Oh, I think you're, I think you're getting the hang of this, you know? <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, but you know, that's, you know, there is a, I, I never saw that. Um, what was that movie? Um, whiplash. Yes. I, I haven't seen it, um, but it's kind of like, I guess that's the kind of stereotype. He wasn't that bad, but okay. um, yeah, it was pretty, um, pretty harsh. But at the same time, you know, there was a camaraderie that people built up in, in his classes and we learned a ton so much. Um, so I got out of college uh, in 1996 and I moved back to Philadelphia and I really wanted to I didn't even know what it meant at the time, I wanted to, to, to be a musician. So mm -hmm. to me that meant like, well, I've never really dedicated myself full 
forced to just practicing because mm-hmm. I was getting another degree in school and all that stuff. Um, so I asked my parents, like, you know, can I can I live at home for a year and take lessons and just practice? Hmm. Um, so that's for the most part what I did. I ended up meeting the woman that I'm now married to about halfway into that. So my time was divided somewhat when we started seeing each other. But um, I was practicing like six, four, six, eight, ten hours a day for about a year, hmm. um, which was amazing, an amazing experience. And I studied with this phenomenal um, bebop guitar player in Philly named Jimmy Bruno. And uh, he just really like, he, he was a little bit kinder mm-hmm. than, than Donald in some ways, but he was like just as harsh. Like I would have a, I think I would have like a two hour lesson with him every two weeks. And uh-huh. he, he knew that I was doing this kind of full time. And he's like, okay, well, if this is what you're doing, this is what you're going to do. And he really put me through the ringer of like wow. learning all the stuff I needed to learn. Um, were you, I'm not were sure you, if I actually learned it, but <laughs> I were you, were you playing out at that time also, or that was really just in the woodshed kind of thing, preparing for pretty much in the woodshed. I would go once in a while to sit in with him and I met up with some other musicians, but I didn't really start playing with those other musicians until after that, until I had moved out and got an apartment and gotten a job. And luckily in Philly at the time, um, for really cheap, you, you know, you, you could have a nice apartment. I had some roommates and, um, I was able to teach lessons and play gigs. And that was my, you know, that was, that was what sustained me. Hmm. Um, and, uh, so then I was playing and I met this, um, bass player who I'm still friends with now named Michael Taylor in Philadelphia. And we started a, a group together and, uh, just started playing. And, and again, like I, I it's kind of like, I, we can talk about this um, as a separate thing, mm-hmm. but but I've been really like trying to study the business of music and mm-hmm. what that looks like now and all that stuff. Yeah. I had no concept of anything like putting out records or anything like that. I just, I guess I just wanted to play. But now looking back, I'm like, why wasn't I thinking about that? Right. You know, it almost seemed like that was like, uh, it was, it would have taken away from the art of the music if I were focused on the business and now I kind of see it as the opposite. But, right. Right. Oh yeah. You know, that, that, is, that is a separate topic, but it's yeah. definitely a rele- relevant one. So yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and tell me if I'm going on. No, no. Along with the stuff. Like, I, not a guy. Step it up. I can, I can get right to Zion. This is want, no man. <laughs> take your time. Yeah. So, cool. so no, cause I'm, because it, cause it's actually these, it's these moments, you know, when you're, which is almost like when you, when you, you already kind of emerge as a professional who's done, who's all these things and you've played with, you know, John Zorn and you've, you've, you've built your own band and, and you're, you know, releasing albums. And that, I mean, that's, that's obviously that is what you're up to now. And that's what you've been building a career, but it's actually that stage where you're entering into this, you know, where you kind of made a, a decision or, or you're just kind of ent- stepping into something fully that that's really fascinating to me. That, I mean, that, that idea of you taking a year yeah. and just, I mean, uh, you know, reminds me of, of course, of like the, Charlie Parker getting, uh, I mean, whatever the legend, the true story right, really right, is, right, you know, right. of and getting, getting laughed off the mind. stage. And I mean, yeah. well, he, in his, in his story, and this is actually featured in, in Whiplash, this, uh, which, um, I had mixed feelings about that movie, but uh, I mean, overall, I, right, I, right. I appreciate pretty it. Pretty much every musician I've heard right. talk about it has said what you just said. <laughs> well, but, but the, you know, one of the things that they, the themes that come out of there is that, and this is why the teacher there being a harsh teacher is considered to be a mixed, you know, character, 
is that, that, that through humilia humiliation and being really tested very extremely comes the best stuff, you know, the most, the most transcendent um, music. And, yeah. it, and basically the, the idea that the, one of the themes of the, that whole movie was that through Charlie Parker's humiliation of getting a, a symbol thrown at him, mm -hmm. you know, um, caused him to turn into Charlie Parker. I mean, that, you know, for, um, so I, did you, I don't know if you, if that's something that you ever related to, meaning what was driving you? I mean, I, I wouldn't assume there was a, God forbid, any kind of humiliation in, right. <laughs> in your past, but what, what was, I mean, obviously a love for music, but was there something that might've been driving you uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to like lead you anywhere. I'm no, just, no, no, I'm just no, 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 no. Could you that, think back to something that was that was like? Because I'll just tell you from my own experience, and I, mm -hmm. I you know, obviously, um, my I, I went to music school, and I, I did a lot of different things over the years. Um, but you know, I, I until very recently, I never really had that kind of focus, um, that kind of clarity and motivation. You know, for me, it was it was there was always something emotional getting in the way, you know, something that the keeping me distracted, you know, it's, uh -huh. but the, without going into all those, those details. Right, so right, so right. I'm, I, I, I'm fascinated by that, you know, that you just turned a switch and you're like, this is it. I'm diving deep into this and there's really not, you know, nothing else I want to want to do right now. So what was, what was mode, if you could address that a little bit, what, would, what was motivating you to get, to, to go deep like that? Yeah, th that's actually a very good question. I'm really glad you brought that up because there is kind of this whole other side that when somebody says, tell your story, I, I rarely, it, not not on purpose, but I rarely talk about this other part, which mm -hmm. is kind of like the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I, well, I, I have some form of OCD. I'm just telling you that because it's sure. relevant and, and, and I think that people should, it's, it's, you know, thank God it's not that, you know, really severe. I've never been debilitated by it, but it's definitely there. It runs in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is definitely an element of obsessionality and compulsivity that was driving my practicing and my desire to, to learn how to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I feel like if I could say like gr personally and growth wise in terms of my relationship to music, the, the biggest success that I feel like I've had over the last like 10 or 15 years is that I can finally, I, I feel like I can finally say that I love playing music more than I need to play it. Hmm. And back then it was the opposite. And it was almost like uh, I enjoyed it and I loved it, but it often got overshadowed by this need, this mm -hmm. like uh, compulsivity to like, you know, I have to uh, play all the things you are like in every key and, or I can't go to bed, you know, wow. and so, it was like, sorry, go ahead. So no, so would you have like, would that equal sleepless nights sometimes? I mean... I, I wasn't, th I mean, I probably, <laughs> I was just about to say, I'd probably be like a little bit better guitar player if I was more OCD and actually sleep this. No, eventually I'd be like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'll do the rest tomorrow. <laughs> just like so tired. Right. But like that, that would get me from like, like 10 until like 1145. Right. And then by like, and then by midnight, like I'm just crashing and I'm in bed and uh -huh. I don't care anymore, you know? <laughs> 
Um, but it's certainly like the first thing that I'm thinking about when I wake up the next morning. Um, and somehow I think through actually the drummer in Babyhead um, was getting into jazz at the same time and told me about this musician named Kenny Werner. Do mm-hmm. you know him? Sure. Okay. I don't know him personally. So, I've, I've read his book and I, you know. Yeah. So sure. his book, I mean, if, you know, if I was melodramatic, I could say on some, on some artistic, I, I do feel like this is true on some artistic level, reading that book at the time that I read it and, and getting to meet him and study with him mm-hmm. kind of like saved me artistically. Hmm. Um, and the alternative, pro- I, I mean, it, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. I probably would have quit playing music and just found something else wow. to do. Um, because as much as I loved it, it drove me so like crazy with this need and, and anxiety about it. And, and I thought I was really just like, I thought I was the only one that felt that way until I read his book. And I don't know how, but I mean, it must be a common thing uh, among artists or whatever, because, you know, he talks a lot about like, he, he really took a lot of the principles and like the inner game of tennis and the inner game of golf and all those kind of books, those sports related books and really applied it to music and came up with a method. But, um, the beginning of his book where he's talking about what's going on inside your head when you're playing Mm -hmm. like that's, that's me. Wow. You know, and I don't know why it should be that way that it's a common experience or at least with him. And I resonated with it so much, but meeting him and starting to study with him was like the very beginning of me being able to like relax a little bit (laughs) and enjoy it and feel like I, like I love it more than I need it. Wow. Um, well, you know, he, he helped me a lot too. His book helped me a lot also. I, I, I never met him personally. Um, I, I guess for me, I, I maybe it was in a slightly different way that that I I wasn't as. Um, I mean, I think he he seems to diagnose the the issue across the board with over identification with music in terms of of personal value. Yes, and and so 100%. that was very liberating to me. So mm-hmm. for me, actually, recognizing that enabled me to get more obsessive. I mean, I mean, not to go, not to put it in, that, in those terms, but meaning, like, I I would not be able to follow through with things because I got because I would get frustrated, right, with the diffi- with the difficulty, and I would I would start to feel bad about myself, and, the, and why you know I couldn't persevere in certain musical challenges. So I would just you know, not give up, but I would, I would kind of hack away and then subconsciously kind of, you know, just, uh, avoid the things that, that were challenging for me. Right. And then his book kind of enabled me to separate who, you know, my feeling, uh, how my feeling about myself from how the music was going. And that was, that was incredibly liberating. And then I was like, well, it doesn't matter if I can't play this Bach, like, you know, it takes me a hundred times to get the, the couple of measures down. That's okay. Like, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. It's not, it doesn't make me a bad person or, you know. Right, 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 um, right. Yeah. And, and I, and then I would be able to do it because it, I, I would, I didn't feel like there was any negative thing. You know, there's nothing to be ashamed of that it took me right. longer than I, you know, than I thought it should. But yeah. that, so I could totally relate to, um, you know, being really inspired by him, you know, so you, but you actually studied with him. It wasn't just the, the, I mean, you read his book first and then found him or. Yeah. Or I read okay. his book first, like probably two or three times. And then somehow, uh, I think that my friend, Jeremy, this drummer, 
um, somehow got me his phone number and um, I called him and he said, yeah, I take students. I had about 10 lessons with him probably over the course of a year. And it was so amazing because it was, he didn't, he didn't teach me or tell me anything that's not in the book. It just Mm -hmm. kind of like drilled it into my head much better. Right. (laughs) So what you know, years was, were, how long ago was this that you studied with this him? This was probably between 1998, 99. We moved to New York in 2000. And I, when I studied with him, we were living in Philadelphia still. Mm-hmm. Um, we, yeah, we moved to New York in 2000. Yeah. Um, and I kicked myself a couple years ago because I played a gig with him and Zorn. And I like, <laughs> I, I just totally clammed up. And I didn't, <laughs> he said, he looked at me, he's like, you look familiar. And it was years ago. I certainly wasn't wearing a kippah and didn't have a beard when he saw me last time, but uh, maybe he recognized me. I was like, yeah, I had some lessons with you back then. And I wanted to be like, you, I don't know what yeah. to say. Like, uh, you know, it's like, it's like when the movie stars talk about somebody like coming up to them and it's like, they feel like they know you. I mean, I do, I do know him, I guess, because I right. studied with him, but you know, it's like clearly the relationship is way is, was much more significant for me as it should be. You know, he's a teacher and he had, he had his kind of, you know, mentors and, and, uh, other people that influenced him and he was one of mine, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I see exactly what you're saying. And it's that liberation from the, the, um, the connection of musical ability and personal worth that is, that allows you to actually grow. Right. So yeah, so that that was really really important for me, and 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 it was definitely a few years. It's it it was a process of internalizing that, and I didn't necessarily like I was pretty like pretty um, diligent about doing his specific method with the four steps and mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. for a few years, and then I kind of said, you know what, I can find my own path in it, and I feel like over the years it's sunk in. I, I could still benefit from that. I do still. Um, kind of practice with his method in mind, although I don't do it like by the book, right, right. you know, so to speak of his method. But um, it's, I, I mean, I think about it every time I have his book on my shelf. Mm-hmm. I, um, I pick, I picked it up just like last week. I, you know, it's like highlighted and like <laughs> falling apart, but wow. you know, I still, I still refer to it. Well, I, you um, know, so it's, it's I, I do want to go back to, to your, your story. This is, but, yeah. I, but this is, this is kind of, so uh, there's a lot of there's an intersection of a lot of different things here with with for me with Kenny Werner and and I, it sounds like with you also because um, one of the things that, that jumped out at me I, I mean I read Kenny Werner's book I was already um, you know an orth, uh, practicing Jew and you know uh-huh. um, you know even though he has like a Hasidic quote in there you know, yeah I, I, did, I know I remember I remember reading that yeah. but he also but he also has like some you know kind of Buddhist style meditation as well and and right. I, and I and one of the things uh, I actually I'll send you a link um, after we we're, we're done with this but I I, I wrote an essay um, called um, Hasidic artistry which was basically oh. based basically it's um, quotes his book and quotes, uh, you know, the Alter Rebbe, um, Shneur Zalman, it talks about, you know, the nature of, of Hasidic mastery. I mean, basically like effortless mastery and, and relating mm-hmm. it to mm-hmm. how the, the, how the Hasidus talks about what 
um, what musical mastery is. I mean, he, he talks about it in the context of prayer and channeling a, a higher song, but it, right. it, it has this incredible parallel. And then, of course, the, the, you know, I addressed what was uh, you know, something that Kenny Warner says that he, he wishes, and this is kind of, I guess, the main theme of this, this podcast to begin with, which is the idea of harmonizing life and music. And when, um, you know, that can be on many different levels. But one of the, the things that's, that jumped out at me that he said in his book was that the piece that he found through um, finding a, a sense of inner mastery and in, inner calm at the piano, he says he wishes, he says, I wish I could, have, you know, wear a piano around my neck all the time. <laughs> Because right. li right. life is right. not like that, he says. Right. So, right. And, and one of the things right. as, as uh, so I've, of course I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, but, but why not? You know, isn't that the larger goal? I mean, can't yeah. music maybe inform uh, life as well? So, so that was, you know, I, so I kind of responded to that in my, in my essay that, that. Oh, that's um, great. So yeah, I'll, I'll send that to you, but. The, yeah, you know, please, I'd love so, to. But I'm that. also interested in, in, you know, your, your, your perspective on that. So what, what, well, I guess we'll get to that part of the story because right now we're still back at the, at the year of, right. uh, <laughs> of shedding. You met your wife then. Yeah. You, okay. So, okay. So <laughs> I can, we can go back there. That would be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, so I was playing with these two guys, bass player and a drummer in Philly at that time. And I had, it, it's funny. Cause I said the, um, you know, the, the kind of obsessive dedication that I had to bebop and whatever West Montgomery and Jim Hall mm -hmm. in college, the, w one of the things that got me into jazz was this very funny, uh, uh, confluence of events that happened when I got to school and I wasn't in the conservatory, but my roommate was a bass player mm -hmm. from New York and it was in the conservatory. And I was asking him about playing the upright bass and I just like, it's an amazing instrument and da da da. And what do you play? And I was like probably bugging him like a little much about like how you play jazz standards and all this stuff. And he's like, Oh, if you're into jazz, like, Oh, here, listen to this. And he gave me a CD and he said, this guy, he, uh, he came to New York for a gig and his bass broke. So I lent him mine and, uh, he gave me a CD and I don't like it. Uh, you know, it's weird. So here you can, you can check it out. So the CD was um, by a bass player named Mario Pavone. Um, I don't know if you know him. Um, I've heard the name. Yeah, okay. he's uh, unbelievable. And it was uh, called Toulon Days. And it was um, all of his uh, original music. But on that record was like a, a really important group of people from the, the Knitting Factory downtown scene. Mm -hmm. And that was my introduction to that music. Wow. And on that record was Thomas Chapin, who was an alto saxophone player, Marty Ehrlich. It was Josh Redman, the, uh -huh. you know, Dewey Redman's son, the tenor player, his first recording. Wow. Um, Hotep Galeta, I think is the name of the piano player, South African guy. Um, Steve Johns is the drummer. I think Steve Johns, gosh, I might be getting some of this wrong anyway, but it was mm -hmm. like, that was like this little seed that started me checking out, like eventually led me to Zorn and Dave uh -huh. Douglas. And then looking back about on that whole scene and where that comes from, like looking back to like Roscoe Mitchell and Anthony Braxton and the art ensemble and the black artist guild and Muha Richard Abrams and all this like mm -hmm. heavy, deep 
avant-garde music that I got into. But as I was like getting into that, I was like, I got this idea in my head, talking about like the OCD thing and music, that if I was going to, it wasn't a baseless idea, but you'll see like how Mm -hmm. like kind of ridiculous it was (laughs) um, in retrospect. But I was like, oh, if I'm going to like check out Mario Pavone and the Knitting Factory music, I need to, I need to rewind the clock on this music 40 years and start there. And then eventually I'll get up to being able to play this stuff. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I remember explaining that to one of my teachers and he was like, why? What? (laughs) He's like, wait, you love this music. You love it. But you're playing that music that you like. Why don't you just play the stuff that you love? (laughs) (laughs) Why why 40 years? Why why not 50 or 60? I, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, oh, Buddy, this Buddy is Bolden like, was, you didn't, yeah, you know, like at least Charlie Christian, you know, like, <laughs> which I eventually, you know, got into him because I see like, you know, his, how amazing he was, but right, like, right. I don't know. I don't know why I was like, oh, this starts with yeah. bebop. So I, I got to learn how to play bebop. Um, yeah. and it was just kind of like this idea that I got into my head and, you know, on the one hand, like I got some kind of working knowledge of like playing standards, but at the same time I knew that I wanted to really check out all this other stuff, but right. I didn't like let myself be into it. Huh. You know, I figured I'll get yeah. there, I'll get there, I'll get there. And then when I, when I met these guys in Philly, it was finally like, okay, enough. Mm-hmm. Like from studying with Kenny and being in the world a little bit and starting, you know, to have a job and working and all this stuff. I was like, I love this music. Let's, let's do it. So, um, so then the knitting factory kind of became that scene became my, kind of like what I really feel like synthesized all the things that I loved Hmm. about music. And it also was kind of the catalyst for me getting back into rock music and folk music and learning about like, that's when I first heard like klezmer music because I heard the klezmatics and other bands like that that were, you know, to one extent or another involved in the knitting factory scene. It's like, oh, there, who is this Naftuli Brandween guy and Hmm. Dave Tarras and all those other, um, you know, formative klezmer musicians. And that also led me to learning about like Balkan music and North African music and, and, uh, you know, all this other stuff that was connected. So, um, the band in Philly was like in the mold of these like knitting factory bands. Hmm. And, but at that time I really felt like I was, I was trying to still trying to imitate something, but it was really more connected to things that really, really moved me and that I really loved. Um, and these guys and I would like, we would play together, but we'd also go to shows together. There were some really great, um, there's like a, I I think it's more now, but you know, Philly has like a real tradition of straight ahead music in Mm -hmm. addition to other music, like the Philly sound and gamble and huff and all of that. But like the jazz thing in Philly is like Jimmy Smith and John Coltrane was there. It probably, you know, in his younger years and it's like a real straight ahead. Well, Sun Ra also, right. So it has the avant-garde thing, but it's kind of like, you know, in that little tiny scene, it's like the younger sibling of the jazz, of the more traditional jazz scene. Um, But there were these guys who would bring people down from New York to play shows and also people in Philly. There's like um, Bobby Zankel and Odin Pope and Elliot Levin and these great like avant-garde musicians in Philly. And also there's a lot of um, Ornette Coleman a lot of people who played with Ornette are in Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like Jamal Dean Takuma, I don't know if you know him. 
He's a bass player mm-hmm. and uh, G. Calvin Weston and Rick Iannacone and Jeff Lee Johnson. Like this whole scene of like avant-garde happening in Philly. And these guys that I was playing with, we got in with those guys and would mm-hmm. open up shows for them and play with them. And, and that was kind of like starting to kind of find my own path a little bit. And we also started coming up to New York to play at the Knitting Factory. Like somehow I got the number. Um, I guess it's still kind of like just – just as the internet was becoming something like that you actually had, you know, (laughs) and not like, Oh, I saw that once, you know, like in college. Um, and we started coming up to the knitting factory and and playing shows and they gave us a gig because we had friends up here and they came, I guess, and bought beer. So they kept having us back. So, um, when I moved to New York in 2000, um, and you'll see the theme of this like obsessive commitment to an idea. Uh Like when I moved here, I was like, I'm going to start a band. I'm going to call it Rasha Neem. I knew the name of the band before I had it. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to get on Sadiq records label and I'm going to work with John Zorn. Okay. That's my, that's my goal. And I would talk to my wife about it. We we got married in 2001 Uh and like, she was like, okay, like what if something else happens that's right. <laughs> also music and also good and something that you didn't plan for? It's like no sense of like hashkaka pratis, you know, just like right. this is what it is. I'm making my decision and I'm going to do it. And success will be based on my getting a hundred out of a hundred on that goal. Right. <laughs> I hear you. Wait, wait, it's so, insane. It's like. <laughs> well, but, but, but it, it works. No, <laughs> I mean, it, well, happened, it happened sort of that way. It I mean, kind you, of you did, did get on Sonic Records. I mean, you did play with John Zorn. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and in a way, that was like the worst and the best thing. It was, I mean, music-wise, and working with Zorn is like the best thing uh-huh. uh, that's ever happened in that way. But in a way, personal development-wise, it was, it was. I mean, I'll tell you, like, mm-hmm. I I fell into like a real depression after I got signed to Sadiq. Huh. And I think it was the whole thing of like, you, you get there and you think it's going to make you happy and uh-huh. you think it's going to solve all your problems because you're still so, I mean, speaking to myself, you're still yeah. so connected between who you are as a musician, and who you are as a person and why, you know, like, okay, I came here and I achieved my goals and, and, um, well, I'll, I'll just back up a second and tell sure. you what happened. So, I got here and I was like, I'm going to form this band and da, da 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 And I started checking out other musicians. I met Shanir Blumenkrantz and Matthias Kunzli very quickly. They were both playing. I think I saw Matthias. Actually, I saw Matthias play at the Knitting Factory. I met Matthias on September 10th, 2001. Hmm. And, okay. and um, was downtown there with my wife. And we went out to dinner with my father-in-law. And he was doing something um, because September 11th was like a pr- election primary. Right. And his... For some reason, he was staying uptown, but his car was in one of the buildings right near the World Trade Center. It didn't mm. get destroyed. I mean, not like it would have mattered so much if it did, but he couldn't get his car for like a week. And then obviously, you know, it was September 11th and it yeah. was crazy. Um, but that's when I met them. And um, in 2003, I had a demo that I gave. I met John in 2003, I think 2003. And he called me a few days later and was like, hey, you want to do something on Sodic? Um, and the kind of achievement of that goal, but still not, but, but it's still not fulfilling these other things that it can't fulfill Mm -hmm. was, was really like, uh, threw me for a loop, Mm. you know? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like what you, what we were talking about before. So, um, but you know, and the other thing that happened is that at the time, Rashani, my band that, that became a trio was a quartet. And I had, um, a good friend of mine at the time was in the band. And when I gave the demo to Zorn, he said, you know, I really don't feel like you guys are on the same page artistically. And I think it would do better as a trio. So it was also having to like, let this friend of mine go from the band, which was really hard. Uh-huh. Um, so it was kind of all these things happening at once. Uh, we were also starting to become observant, starting to get more involved, talking about starting a family. And for the next few years, as Russia Neem was starting to record, working more with Zorn, him kind of taking us under his wing, we did an album of his music for the second album um, called Masada Rock with that trio. Um, we played with Mark Rebo on that record, which was tremendous for me because mm-hmm. Mark is probably my favorite, one of my favorite guitar players. Um, and, uh, but it was like figuring, trying to figure everything out with like being observant and, and, uh, a lot of the kind of conflict of that came when, when Zorn would ask me to do shows on Friday night. Right. I was like, so torn. So well, torn. Well, let me, let's go back a little bit. Cause, yeah, cause yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so, cause, yeah, cause I'm, I've always, no, 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 this is, uh, I'm just, I'm jumping in cause I want to yeah. just get a little clarity no, no, in terms of, jump in. <laughs> cause this is something that, that really, you know, I, I, um, you know, used to have conversations with Andy Statman. Uh-huh. We, used to, we used to actually learn together. Um, and, uh, you know, we used to sit this together and we, you know, it ended up, yeah, he's and we'd end up, you know, talking about music. You know, right, right, right. And so one of the things that, that I, it was kind of a feeling I had and I kind of bounced it off him as someone, I mean, I, um, you know, I, I used to live down in New Orleans and I, I you know, loved oh. the music down there. And, and that, and I remember that there was a, there was a, a there's a, I don't know if they, I think they're probably still around in some form, but called the New Orleans Klezmer All-Stars. Sure. Yeah, yeah, Right. So, I mean, they, you know, so they were these amazing musicians who had these, you know, kind of New Orleans street beats uh, paired with kind of this uh, quirky Klezmer, Yiddish Klezmer music. Right. And, and I remember when I initially encountered it, I was very excited by it because it was, you know, it's, it's like my roots it's jewish but it's also this right. really funky music that i love and then i was at jazz fest one year and the guys came out like it was uh, willie green the the drummer from the neville brothers was playing drums for that gig even though oh. i don't think he played most of the gigs at that time but he he was there for that one and and they all came out it was like a whole shtick they came out with these like fake beards and they, you know, they did this whole like, like yuckety yuckety, you know, we're pretending yep. to be Jewish. This is like a fun, you know. So, so I kind of got that left me with a little bit of, a, and this was be- way before I'd gotten to being religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if it was just that moment, but then when I when I encountered something about the the klezmer revival scene, um, some somehow struck me a little bit like incongruous. It didn't. It, meaning, there was certain music that I could that was like had this integrity that I could embrace on every level, um, not not religious music, just like you know, great music that that was a fan. And then there was something with when mixing the Jewish thing in, when it didn't, it wasn't reflective of a of a religious um, approach. I, I'm, I'm 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 kind of I'm not 
100% clear on what I'm talking about. I'm, this is what I'm kind yeah. of leading to a question about it. Yeah, but yeah. essentially, you know, I remember talking to, to Andy Stadman about it, and he was, he was also kind of feeling, I think that's why he gets, he gets very, um, he can be kind of very strict about his uh, approach to, to Klezmer as mm -hmm. well, um, even though he's obviously a pioneer in, in that whole scene. But, you know, his, his sense of that, that kind of parody, he, he, is, he also has very strong feelings about it, that it's, you know... Um, so I wonder, so, but you were, you were kind of attracted to it at a certain point, th this idea of, of kind of melding a, some kind of Jewish consciousness, a cultural consciousness, some kind of melodic, like how, how do you, uh, this is, I guess, a very long way to get to the question yeah, 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 what, yeah, no, no. for you. What, what is the, what was your entree into, you know, your, I mean, for one, your Jewish identity re related to the music that you were into and that you were, you were playing. Um, particularly, you know, influenced by John Zorn, and then and then how did that translate into religious um, practice? And then and then what became your feeling about it then, if it if it did change or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's a really good question, an important question, I think. Um, so, uh, well, first the the religious thing. So so like I said, I, I wasn't raised with any um, Yiddishkeit to speak of, I grew up in a really Jewish area. So like my wife grew up in an area where like she would get made fun of for being Jewish and mm. there weren't many Jews in her school and things like that. So it definitely had like a negative uh, feeling for her in terms of her, her identity. Um, or, you know, she was, she was ostracized for it. I grew up in a school, uh, you know, going to the public schools outside Philadelphia where like the jocks and the nerds and the, you know, the, the kids that would get in trouble all the time were all Jews. Mm -hmm. So it was like, mm -hmm. <laughs> there was no, it wasn't a thing. It just right. was like almost something I didn't notice. And, and the only like resonance that Jewishness had for me was like my grandmother, because she had kind of still kind of had an accent. She was, um, you know, from like Poland, Ukraine, and she spoke all these languages and she knew all these things. She just had, and she wasn't religious at all, but she just had this like worldliness about her that, you know, it was just like blew me away that somebody, it was like she, it was like she, uh, not in a mean way, but like, it was like she was like a thousand years old and she had all this experience and knowledge, but I didn't even, mm -hmm. you know, it's only, you know, since she's passed away that I'm like, oh my gosh, if I could only have just sat down and talked to her about where she grew up and mm. what her experience was like and what it was like for her to leave Yiddishkeit, whatever that means. I, right. I mean, I think, you know, the story in the, fa the story in the family, which people still say, and I'm like, come on, that's ridiculous. But uh -huh. it's like, they moved to the Lower East Side. They, they walked into their tenement on the first day. They went downstairs, discovered Chinese food and right. the Jewish, the Jewish <laughs> went out the window. Right, right. <laughs> I'm like, come on, we have great, you know, Jewish, uh, great kosher Chinese food in New York. What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, so I got into, um, I got into Buddhism, basically. I, mm -hmm. I, I got pretty seriously into Buddhism in high school and was like a pretty serious Buddhist for many years, about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it was that I was looking for something spiritual and also like meditation is really good for, for obsessional, okay. <laughs> like thinking and stuff like that. It's just, is like, it's amazing. You know, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank God, like I never got into drugs cause I always felt like if I, like I was terrified of my, of what my mind would do on any kind of drugs, but I probably, if I did them and liked them, I would have maybe had a problem. 
you know, right, right. <laughs> cause that's just the kind of personality I have. Um, so thankfully that never happened. Um, but I did get, get pretty seriously into meditation. I went to India on a study abroad program, um, during year of college, which was amazing. Um, and so just on that, on that stream of life, kind of, I, the, the impetus for getting involved in Yiddishkeit was getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I had already been t- together, you know, as boyfriend and girlfriend for several years. And we decided that we wanted to get married and she was like, we're having a Jewish wedding. And I was like, Oh, I thought maybe we could have a Buddhist wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, I don't even know what that is. And I was like, I don't know what it is either, but maybe we could figure <laughs> it out. And she said, no, we're, we're not going to have a Buddhist wedding. Like, I don't like you, you can meditate. That's fine. But you know, so we, we got connected with a woman who at the time was a student at the reconstructionist, um, rabbinical college in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And she was like our entry. She was like our, uh, like our drug dealer for Judaism, okay. <laughs> for lack of a better word. She was the one that got us hooked. Um, cause she was, she was the first person that either of us had, and this is so crazy that this was our lives, but it's, and it's obviously, it's so common. Mm-hmm. She was the first person I ever met who cared deeply about being Jewish. Wow. <laughs> it was like, I, I only knew Jews growing up. Right. And then like once in a while you hear, oh, he's religious. He became religious. He went to Israel. You know, we, we knew a kid in another family, like, like he like flipped out, went to Israel and two years later he was back and not religious. Right. Right. That was my only, or like when we would go to visit my grandparents in New York, we would go on the BQE and see the Hasidim walking right. across the bridge. And I was like, right. who, what is that? How is that? How does that exist? Yeah, yeah. Like I've never <laughs> met anybody that looks like that. And my mom and dad would just be like, oh, they're crazy. Yeah, yeah. I had the same like, experience. <laughs> right. But yeah. it's like, you think about it now, it's like, he doesn't look crazy. He just looks like he lives on another planet right. or another country. <laughs> he's not crazy. He's, he's pushing a baby stroller and like going to the supermarket. That's right. not crazy. <laughs> I know what crazy looks like. That's not crazy. He's yeah. just a normal guy, but he's different. Yeah. You know, so like that, like, you know, the, the exotic thing of that. And um, <laughs> so how do you go um, and, from the reconstruction so to you know, to becoming more observant in a right. orthodox um, way. Yeah. Yeah. So, she, so, so this woman Shoshana, who's a reconstructionist rabbi now, um, she hooked us up with, um, and this all happened pretty quickly. Uh, I, I had actually gone to a secular humanist Hebrew school when I was in fourth grade to sixth grade. Okay. And the, I, we prided ourselves on that. We were so, we, we did so little work that the, that the woman who was teaching us Hebrew, she quit. So we literally got, it sounds like a joke, but we literally got halfway through the Aleph bet and that was all we learned. They didn't right. hire another okay. teacher. But on the good side, I didn't have a negative experience of Hebrew school because it was like a free for right, right, right. We like wrote stories and, and actually we had this woman who was a survivor and she would tell us stories and like she was an amazing storyteller and we would huh. just be kind of, she, but it wasn't scary. She would just tell us about, she was a librarian and that's what saved her. And huh. she just had these amazing stories. And, um, there was a woman there named Marsha Prager, who now is a very prominent reconstructionist and yes. renewal yes, rabbi. And she has this great book called the path of blessing, which is, which mm-hmm. is a wonderful book. And she was, our, she was the head of the Hebrew school. Okay. So she would just like teach us songs. And I related to that because the music sounded like the folk music that my mom and dad listened to. 
Huh. It was probably Karbach and stuff right, like that, right. but, but I didn't know what it was. So, so this woman Shoshana, she like, you know, she gave us a lot of books and she really like, you know, we, we basically had, we didn't have a halachic wedding. We ended up having to redo it. At, okay. We actually redid it at 770. Oh. Totally different story. Okay. Unbelievable experience and kind of a comical experience also, okay. um, which I can go into, but, um, but you know, we had a ketubah and we learned about what it was and we did the ring and the circling around and the traditional, you know, the Sheva Brachot and all that stuff. Um, and the wedding was like, so it was like, you know, talking about her being the first Jewish person we ever met who really cared about it. That was the first Jewish like experience that we ever had that mm. was really, really meaningful. Um, and then after our wedding, and this was right around the same time that I'm forming Roshanim, because I remember we went to Allah Chaim, I think, uh, Allah Chaim is Isabel Friedman now, or I guess they merged. Right. Um, I, I interned there before they went to Oh, great. Isabel oh, Friedman. so in the older location. Yeah. Yeah. Were you there when, um, oh gosh, what's his name? He's a, a genealogy expert. Yes. Kurzweil. Yes. Yes. Well, yes. he was, he was there a lot. I was there a whole summer. Um, and it was actually the summer before, then that, that year I went to Yeshiva, I ended up going to Yeshiva oh. in Crown Heights, um, oh, wonderful. later that year. So uh -huh. that was like, and what year was that? That was 99. Oh, okay. Right. So right around the same time. Okay. So I think he was actually maybe the executive director at Allah Chaim for a little while. Right. Kurzweil. Yeah. He was very involved. Yeah. 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 So we went to Allah Chaim at Rosh Hashanah and it was right after 9-11 and it was probably like a week after I had met. Matthias, who, who became my drummer in Roshanim. Uh -huh. um, so it was all happening at the same time. And we had just moved to New York a year before. So being at Allah Chaim, it was like, we, you know, th there was a few months, we got married in the summer and then, uh, you know, it was a few months before Rosh Hashanah and we started going to different, we lived in Park Slope and we started going to different shuls there. We hadn't, it was another year or two before we would go to the, to the Orthodox shul there. But like we started to like get a feel for like the different, different like flavors of Judaism. And, you know, it's, I, I talk about this a lot actually with, um, um, do you know Moshe Sobel? Yeah, I've, I've met him. I mean, he, I know he, okay. he, she plays in your band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we talk, uh, you know, a lot of stuff like this, like mm -hmm. it's like, and this is a whole other thing that we don't need to get into, but it's okay. like, I, <laughs> I think so much of like being, this is told, I'm just going to like tangent for a second, sure. Israel. I'm sorry. Sure, no problem. Back. So, but like, I've been, fast forward many, you know, a few years and finding out about this thing called, called modern orthodox and what the, not necessarily the, what it is in practice, but the ideal of it mm -hmm. and synthesizing those two things that, that on some level can't be synthesized, but it's that like tension that, that really makes it vital. Um, and like, it's, it's hard for me to express sometimes that like this experience meeting this woman, Shoshana was like an amazing, deep Jewish experience. Mm -hmm. It isn't where we ended up and it isn't what we found resonated with us. But to us, like the experience of it at the time wasn't like, 
were like jumping over the wall and going into orthodoxy. It was like, it was more like we're going down this river and it's like, oh, what's this little tributary? Mm. What are mm -hmm. these people all about? And it's just like on an emotional, even on an emotional level that it resonates with you in a certain way. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I get it now in a different way that I didn't huh. get before. So it's, you know, it's never, you know, I don't ever want to be disparaging of other things. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, obviously I, I believe in halakha. I believe in Yiddishkeit. I believe that, you know, I believe that Judaism is halakha. They're kind of synonymous and, you know, whatever, whatever that makes me, I don't know. Maybe I guess I'm a fanatic or something. But like, <laughs> yeah, well, well, uh, how, I mean, how did you come to that? I, mean, I don't, I mean, I, that to me, that's mainstream, but, but I, exactly. No, did, no, no, for how, sure. How did you, how sure did you come to that? I mean, after you know, spending time yeah. I mean, besides obviously with, with renewal, reconstructionists, and there's so many yeah. other approaches and also just to yeah. bring back to, to, you know, with, let's say, you know, John Zorn's approach, I mean, which, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. or oh, other yeah, yeah. Right. klezmatics where, where there, where there is yeah. a powerful spiritual thing there. Yes. It is connected yes. to, to Judaism. You know, I mean, one, one of the things that I remember someone mentioned about John Zorn that, that kind of, um, they remember seeing, you know, him with like tzitzis, right. Yeah. But with like no yarmulke, there was like, I meaning it was like a kind of a, a mix of different, uh, you know, so like some reverence and some irreverence all mixed right. together. So, yeah. so yeah. how, so how for you both, both, I guess, spiritually, religiously, and also with the music, how did you yeah. find your path and how do you relate to, to that approach now? Right. Um, okay. So, so we just kind of gradually started, um, going different places, doing, you know, Shabbatons and going to people's houses. Um, reading books and stuff like that. But there were some formative experience experiences in that time religiously that I think looking back had a big impact. One was, one was seeing Arthur Kurzweil, mm -hmm. honestly, and being yeah. like, like, I remember like asking somebody there, it's like, well, I heard he's Orthodox. He right, really right, right. Orthodox. And it's like, he doesn't wow. conform to the stereotype uh -huh. that I grew up with. Like, oh, these Jews are over here. They're normal people, but they're into Judaism. Fine. But this guy yeah. with the beard, but then he starts telling these stories and he's, he, he had all these stories. He had this great story about volunteering to be the driver for Rav Steinsaltz when he right. would come here and just to be in the car with him. Yes. And that to me like had such a resonance and a humility and like, I don't know, it was yeah. so deep hearing him talk about that. Well, I was, you know, I had, I had a very similar experience. I mean, it was, it was Arthur Criswell who also influenced me in that way. Oh. As well, and 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 very some some story. I mean, did he yeah. did he did he include the part where he asked when he asked uh, Rabbi Steinsaltz about uh, marijuana? No, that was part that was part of his story when he drove no. when he got to be a driver for him. He asked him what what's the the story that the tour of you on marijuana, uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and he said as he answered. Um, I'm surprised I, re I remember this. <laughs> it was like <laughs> like 18 years ago. Um, he said that there was two problems. One of them is not such a problem, and the other one is maybe more of a problem. And so the one that's not such a problem is the um, the law, the halacha, the that the law of the land is the law. And oh, he said, that's right, not right. such a problem, and we can see now it's really not right. such a problem because the law right. of the land is is changing, you know, as we speak, right. to making right. it legal. But even back then when it was illegal, he said it's not such a problem because there's there's things that, that, you know, could be made against the law that, that according to the Torah, if, if it's important and if, if it's, you know, for 
um, there are still reasons where if, even, if it's, even if something is against the law where, you know, um, I mean, there are exceptions to that rule. That's the right, point. Right. But the other one, he says more of the problem. And he just, his answer was that uh, who's using who? That was his. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway. Interesting. So yeah, he, he influenced <laughs> me a lot as well. That's really funny. Another yeah. Yeah. Parallel. Yeah. Um, so that was one thing of spending, of spending Rosh, Rosh Hashanah there at, um, at Alat Chaim. And then I was working at the time, um, at a children's theater in the city doing like their publicity and marketing and then eventually graphic design, um, which has kind of been my day gig for, for a while now. Um, and there was a, a guy who I became close friends with who was also, starting to get into Yiddishkeit. So we would just talk about it all the time at work. Hmm. And he's the one who told me who Shlomo Kalbach is. Okay. He, and one day he was like, oh, you're a musician, you play Kalbach? And I was like, I don't, I don't even know what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, what, what is that? Right. So he's like, he sang a couple of songs. I said, yeah, I know that song. Yeah, I know that song. Yeah, I know that song. He said, you know, they were all written by the same guy like 30 years ago wow. or 40 years ago. So that blew me away and I found out about Kalbach through him. And then we went to a retreat uh, a Shabbaton in the city at, um, oh gosh, I can't remember what they're called. Cause there are all these like Jewish organizations. That's like three letters. And the first one's a J. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I it can't was, help you there. <laughs> there's, um, what's his name? Lawrence Hadjioff was a rabbi there. Do you know him? I don't know. I do not. He's, know. he's really great. Um, anyway, so the retreat was with a rub named Svi Teitelbaum who used to run this program called Moodis, which was in Moodis, Connecticut. It was like a cure of like a week, like camp, um, you know, for people getting interested in Yiddishkeit. It, it's in Connecticut, I guess, in this place called Moodis, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. But he, w when we went, he was like, he found out about my wife and I, he was like, you know, let him come for free. And he found out that I didn't have to fill in at the time. And he, uh, my to fill in that I still use is from him. Wow. So I was like, okay, wow. Like that's at first it was like, okay, wh what's the, what's the deal here? <laughs> like, what does he want? Um, and it was like a really, it was an amazing experience and I didn't know what was going on in the davening. I mean, I was starting to learn to read Hebrew, but it felt to me mm -hmm. and my wife as well. And, and we're different. We have a different relationship to Judaism and, and whatever. That's another thing. But like, it felt it felt real to us. It felt like, it felt like you said, it felt normal in hmm. a way, like, like f totally foreign, but totally normal. Like you're going to another culture hmm. and the singing around the table, like, I don't know, like there's the singing of like, okay, we're going to sing a song now and everybody's going to be into it. And that's fine. You can get into it that way. Hmm. But if you're just sitting around a Shabbos table and someone just starts singing a nigun and everybody knows it and it's like just part of what's happening, right. it's, it's, it's on another level. Yeah. It's on another level. It's like, it's like, it's like the, um, like, uh, you know, like, uh, um, like the griot musicians, like in, in, in Africa that it's like, they're not there to get up on stage and play a concert. There's nothing wrong with that, mm -hmm. but they're the guys who for generations would go around and they would make up songs to tell the stories about what was happening. Right. Like that's the news. That's the right. internet. Right. You know, it's like <laughs> more integrated into the integrated. Yeah. Integrated. And that, that level of integration is so, it just is so it, it like, it doesn't need any explanation. You, you had mentioned, I think in passing or in the context of 
how you used to look at approaching music and, and the business of music and how you look at it now in a different way. Yeah. And the, the idea that one of the things that reminded me about it yesterday is the idea of kind of doing, you know, it used to be that, the, that you can just focus on the music itself as a musician. And that was, that was kind of a paradigm. And I think in certain people's minds, that still is a paradigm, even though I think most people who are kind of approaching music as a business kind of have, have maybe let that go to a certain degree, unless they're one of the very, very chosen few who can just, just focus on the music and literally nothing else. Right. But the idea of, but I actually think it's kind of fun to, by necessity, but also it expands your horizons to learn about all these different other things, you know, learn about um, whether it's, I mean, th things directly connected with music, like recording or, um, you know, or various things within music or things that are not connected, like they're not directly connected, like graphic design and, right. and filming and, you know, yeah. storyboarding and that kind of thing. So um, is, that, is that how you're kind of approaching when you had mentioned that you were had a different approach to the music business? Is that kind of what you meant? Yes. Yeah. A few things. But I, I, I completely agree with you that um, learning all aspects of what you do, um, if you're going to decide to do it in a professional way, I think it is very important. And I, I had heard pretty early on, there was another book. I'm very into this book. I don't know if I mentioned it the last in the last time, but there's this music business book that I've been really, really into um, that just came out a few months ago that, that has kind of been my guidebook for, for pretty much everything that I'm doing now. Um, but I had read books before. And one thing that I feel like I came across over and over again is whether it's with, uh, management or, or press or anything like that, that you, that the only reason to get somebody else to do it is because you can't, you literally don't have the time to do it. Right. So that you should know when, if you're going to hire a publicist, fine. But if you have the time and the energy and you're not necessarily like, you know, a huge uh, musician and would have to pay out of pocket or whatever, that you should know how to write a press release. You should know how to pitch a story. You should know how to put a press list together, how to follow up with them, how to be kind of like persistent, but, you know, not disrespectful. All those skills that a publicist would need. So then when you hire the publicist, you know what criteria they need to have. Right. And that you can't just expect to hand it off to somebody and that they'll, they're going to take care of you. So let me let me guess. You're talking about Ari Herstan's book. I am. Did yeah. we talk about it last we time? We didn't. We did not. But that's. Oh, uh, but you're familiar yeah. with it. I'm more than familiar with it. Yeah. Oh <laughs> great! Like, it's so good. It's changed my whole approach to. Me too. Things. Me yeah. too. Well, how did you first hear about him? Um, it's a good question. You know, well, I I got to, I I kind of became open to it because I, I started to just take a whole different approach to my time and, and life and started to, uh -huh. I started to get, not that I've never spent time on, on like actualizing your potential type books or right. thinking grow rich type books in the past. I've definitely, right. but I, I've kind of felt for the first time that those could actually have a practical benefit in, in my life. And there was, there's actually this guy um, out of Pittsburgh. Um, his name is Matasio Gorin, who has a podcast uh, he was calling it the long short way. Now he changed it to mission driven where, Oh yeah. He, if, I, I, you've heard it. You've heard of him. Yeah. That's the long short way. Sounds familiar. And definitely well, his, long short way is, is a saying from the Tanya from, but, gotcha, he, but gotcha, he called gotcha, his, okay. but he, you know, he's been very, very proactive and very prolific. 
in his um, you know, connections and podcasting, getting tons oh, of, wow. of rabbis and business business um, experts. And yeah, it's he, sounding familiar. He yeah. was an NBA coach, and he got all the these um, he gets these NBA other NBA stars and coaches on his. So he he. Um, and he wrote a little book, and he's like very proactive as a as like a Balchuva religious um, person who uh-huh. who was kind of part of that um, that world before the, the you know fulfill your potential kind of world as an MBA right. coach. So he kind of applied it as a religious person, feeling a certain need within the religious community. And his target audience has been a very specific audience, like Balchuva. <laughs> men oh wow yeah i mean it and but he, but it's actually very i so I've, I've, i haven't really listened so much recently to um but i find I, I i was very inspired by him for a period of time and you know he's the kind of thing where he's you know he's just like get up at 5 a.m you know what are, what are you waiting for your dreams are waiting that kind of message right. so yeah. yeah and so so some reason that that opened me up to obviously to get specific about what I'm, what my dreams are, and connected to music. So the book, the yeah. Ari Hurston book, I, I, I definitely found his blog. I, it was probably I was probably googling something about licensing, uh-huh. and his blog came up. Yeah, and then I found out about it. Yeah, I think so, that was the same for me. And yeah. I'm sorry, just because I want to make sure I have the name. It's Marisiahu Gorin, G O R E N, is the yes. last name. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to check that. I just wrote that down. Um, yeah, I had the same thing. I think actually mine was it wasn't licensing. It was um, I was putting out i put out a cd a couple years ago just on my own and it was part of the impetus for now this this um label that i'm starting with my bass player shinier blumenkrantz um which i don't know if i mentioned no last you didn't. time what's what's the name uh, of the label um it hasn't started yet it's going to be called chant records okay and um i can go into kind of the whole story and what we're thinking of that because we're very much in the i mean we're a little past the planning process we're well, starting I'd love to, to i'd love to hear about that yeah yeah definitely um and i think the um anyway th- this album that i put out it's it wasn't cyanide it was just something i did completely on my own and um i was looking for a digital distribution service and i had worked with TuneCore. um i like uh i work with this project and and i was kind of their designer but also, because the music background, I handled all the digital distribution stuff, and I, I didn't know if that was good. So I w- went Googling for it and found his blog, and I, I I initially had like a really, not really, but initially I was like, oh, what is this? Like, mm-hmm. you know, something where they give you like three words and then they try to get you to pay for something else. Right, right. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, look at this like hipster kid, you know, and and I didn't pay much heed to it, although I did follow his advice and I went with this smaller digital distributor that I've been really happy with, mm-hmm. um, called DistroKid, And, uh, um, but then, then, uh, I heard him on, do you know, um, Leo Sidron? The name sounds familiar. His father is Ben Sidron. Okay. Ben Sidron is this, he's a jazz guy. I think his back, that's what his background is. He's in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and I think he tours a lot, but he, he put out a couple of Jewish albums years and years ago that somebody gave us. So I just knew his name. Mm-hmm. Um, he has an album called Life's a Lesson. That's the the Jewish themed album that I knew about. And his son, Leos, is a, is a drummer in New York. And somehow I got um, to his podcast and then he had this guy on, Ari Herstan. And, and, and I literally was like in my kitchen in the morning getting ready to go to work. I was like, okay. All right. So this is the second time I've seen this guy's name. I, he kind of rubbed me in a weird way the first time it just didn't i don't know it didn't seem interesting to me 
But Leo Sidrin is awesome and his podcast is great. And I was like, okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it 10 minutes. Uh-huh. And I, so I downloaded it so I could listen to it on the train. And after one minute, I was like, oh, I, I was wrong about this guy. I was really wrong about him. <laughs> and since then, I've just been like, you know, totally trying to read and absorb everything that he does and listening to other interviews. And I read his book through. I mean, you probably did the same thing, too. I read it through twice. I highlighted it. I was like. <laughs> kind of drove my wife nuts because I pre-ordered it in like November last oh, wow. year. Okay. And then it came out in December and I got it and I was like reading it all the time. And uh, it's great. And it definitely has, like you said, like been really tremendous um, in a positive way for like my outlook on business. And, and you know, it's only been out for several months and I've done a few projects, but everything that I've done from his book has worked. Wow. And it's, that seems like a crazy, like self-helpy kind of like, it's, you know, I yeah. tried the, you know, I said the mantra a million times and now, you know, it's you like. a testimonial, but, right. Yeah, exactly. But, but the thing is, and, and I don't know if he says at the beginning of the book, everything works. And at the same time, there's no, there's no secret thing to do. And there's nothing where the, the reward that you get is like wildly disproportionate to the amount of effort that you put in. Right. And you know, but it really has broken down so many things for me and made it seem from this amorphous kind of overwhelming thing of like success, whatever that is mm-hmm. to very, very practical. Like you said, like, what can I do today? I can wake up an hour early and work on my press release or work on the planning for this video or whatever. So right. that's been huge for me. Yeah. It's, that's, it's really funny. I mean, we've, yeah, we've had a, a number of different parallels, but this is, um, yeah, this is one that that really, um, you know, it was actually in the midst of reading his book. I, I've had I recorded an album with my band in the summer of 2013. So it's been, uh-huh. oh my gosh, it's been four four years. Am I doing the math right? It's yeah, it's crazy. Four right? years. Okay, right. I don't so know if it's an age thing, but like it's like you just blink and it's like. So I recorded this album. I recorded it. We recorded it in two days. You know. Right. Um, and it was like, yeah, great album. Good job, guys. You know, let's, let's go release it. And then yeah. I, you know, then I got married that year. And then, um, and then I did a crowdfunding campaign that really, that, that I'm, now I look back, I'm very thankful. We had a number of supporters and um, it wasn't an all or nothing thing. So we, we made it, you know, made it, um, it was, a, it was only a fifth of what I, the goal I'd set, but it was still, we made a couple thousand dollars, which was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And you know the the goal was to make vinyl similar to what the, you recently did, yeah. Um, in terms of uh, you know I I I was very uncomfortable with with the whole social media and trying to yeah. ask people to support it was it was very it was very challenging for me. And then when the thing ended, and then the album, I didn't feel like I raised enough, and I didn't have enough money for PR, and I just kind of let the thing sit. You know. I, um, right, right, and no, and you. then in the middle of reading Ari's book, I, it's just like, yeah, I can, I got to get this thing released. I'm ready to go. So I just, yeah. So I just set a date and you know, mastered the vinyl, sent it to printers, and oh great. And now I'm, you know, now I'm a couple months away, and I'm <laughs> still, I don't know, you know, I have to, um, get my my checklist in order. But yeah, gotcha. it's, it's C- couple months away. Like the release is in a few September months. September 10th. Yeah. Oh great, wonderful. And your your album, what's what's the the date on that, or, or you have released it? 
No. So the Zion 81 will be out on November 1st as part of this, <coughs> excuse me, as part of this um, label that, that I'm starting with Shinya. Okay. So, so you definitely want to get back to where we were, we were in the middle of the story, but for just yeah. tell me that the label, cause you know, you know, I've, I've been, you know, I started at something called Sound Heights Records and yes, it's I also a label that. though, though um, the technical aspects of it, I'm still working out. Uh-huh. So what, what, in terms of you starting the label, what, what is, how, what does that entail? I mean, obviously you could put out an album of your own music. Right. Um, so what, what is the, what are you doing beyond that to, to make a right. label? Right. So, well, that's a very good question because the impetus for the starting of the label was, um, I mean, Shanir had been starting, Shanir Blumenkrantz is the bass player in Zion 80 and he's, um, basically the, the bass player that I call for every project that I do. And he's also a tremendous producer and just an amazing, like musical mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been playing with him and very close with him for like 17 years now, which is crazy. Um, I met him in 2000 when my wife, my wife and I moved to New York and have been playing with him since. And, um, the, the kind of light bulb went off for me when, um, I was do I, I was like Googling him actually, because we were playing somewhere and I needed a, a little bio of him for the program. Okay. And, um, and they wanted a little bit, it was like a very, I think it was maybe when we played in Houston last year, they, they were doing a very thorough job of like giving a little bio for every musician in the band. Okay. And which is not, obviously, you know, it doesn't <laughs> it very much doesn't always happen. Right. Right. Um, so I was like, Oh, I just need like a list of everybody he's played with and whatever. So I Googled him and the first thing that came up is an album that he had done, um, with his girlfriend, um, with this band, the Fugu plan. And, um, I, I clicked on it. I was like, Oh, this must've been something they did years ago. And it had just come out maybe a month before I started listening and loved the music. Mm. And I, not only have I been friends with Shanir for many years, I'm, I'm also friends with his girlfriend. She comes to Zion 80 shows. We hang out, but I didn't know about the existence of this album until I Googled him to get a bio and found it. Okay. And within the span of a month or two, that happened two or three more times. Wow. Like I found out that people had done something and like maybe I was aware of it, but I didn't really hear it. And, and, and I called him and I, I said, man, something is wrong because we're making all the effort. Right. But it should be a given that any fan of any one of these albums should hear the other albums or should at least have the albums put in front of them as like, you might enjoy this. Right. Right. And I said, we have to do something about this. So that was really the impetus for the label. Um, the, the, the way that we've created it is not, it's, you know, the first thing that we thought of was, Oh, maybe it should be some kind of a co-op or something. And then we really decided like, that's not necessarily going to work the best. So he and I are kind of at the helm of it. And, we are in some ways functioning as a traditional label doing distribution and promotion and publicity and arranging shows and, you know, things like that. But, um, we're doing it pretty much all online. So, I mean, not, not online, but you know, all digital format. Right. And, um, we are kind of asking the artists to help in this aggregation of awareness about the music, but we're, at the helm of it and we're creating a release schedule and we're doing a, like a release festival in October. And, um, 
you know, I mean, we're kind of starting with nothing other than this community of artists that don't necessarily have a home on one particular label. And everybody kind of feels the need to put, put everything somewhere where it can, where, you know, my album can strengthen his, can strengthen hers. And it's all contributing to some, some, something more unified than just everybody putting out their little album on their, on our own. Right. Well, so that's basically amazing. the idea. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds amazing. I mean, it's another yeah. parallel cause that's kind of, that was kind of the idea of, of Sound Heights records. Oh, great. Um, that yeah. sounds like you're a little bit more advanced in it than, um, well, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, the one thing that, that I re that I've seen, and I'm sure you felt the same way is that it's like, what it really is about is the community of people making the music. Right. You know, like I was talking to Frank London about it, um, a little while back when I was working on the promotion for the Zion 80 album. And he said, yeah, why don't we, you know, if we're going to put out, let's say four or five people have albums written, but they haven't recorded it yet maybe we could get a studio for two or three days. We'll get 12 musicians and we'll all play on each other's albums and we'll cut studio costs and we'll cut rehearsal and musicians fees. And we'll kind of like, you'll play on my album and I'll play on yours. And, and, hmm. and it's things like that, that I think we want to make this album kind of a, uh, the, the label rather a platform for that's that. That's cool. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, there's been a lot of enthusiasm. It's a lot of work and, and, you know, I, I, read her Stan's book and kind of put together this huge spreadsheet of everything I think we need to do. And we're, we're kind of going for it and doing our best realizing that, you know, there's no way that we can know everything that we should be doing, but right, right. we're still doing it. <laughs> well, that's great. I think it's really amazing. I mean, we, we definitely have, I, I could spend, you know, time talking about this also, cause this is yeah. another parallel and, and the question would be how, how, um, different labels could work together. <laughs> That's yes, like a, absolutely. another meta absolutely. question. Yeah, Let, let's, absolutely. so, so maybe we can talk about that later, but I'm going to yeah. get, I definitely want to get back to, um, wow. But that's very exciting though. I, I'm really, yeah, yeah, I'm really glad you, yeah. to share. Okay. So, so let's, let's get, um, so let's get back. You, you were, you were speaking about your experience, um, he, you know, being introduced to Karlbach for the first time. Yeah. And your experience at, at a, a Shabbos table, how you felt that there was this spontaneous musical expression yeah. that kind of had, had no ceremony, um, not, not a ceremony, but no um, performance about it. It was kind of spontaneous right. in, in the moment. Right. Um, so that, that's kind of where we, we kind of left off. Yeah. And in, in, I guess in general, part of the larger conversation about your journey towards becoming um, more observant as a, yeah. as a Jew. Yeah. So where, so what, so what, um, so, you know, after your, your experience of, of Shabbos, uh, the music in Shabbos and, and, um, you, you mentioned, uh, Rabbi Teitelbaum right. who gave you your first tefillin. Yeah. So what, um, cause so if you don't mind what, so after that, so you're already, you're already playing professionally. Yeah. You're already, you're already part of the downtown music yeah. scene. And yeah, that, that was like, yeah, like a, a few years in maybe Rasha Nim, my trio maybe had our second record out by that time, our third record. So did, did that, the, that movement towards observant um, Judaism, did that affect your, your music? Did it affect your, your musical career choices? Um, you know, did, did it cause a, a tumult or was it just kind of a, 
something you integrated into your uh, what you were doing already? I think probably honestly all of the above. Okay. <laughs> and um, and you know I think I mentioned this before. I feel like until um, <clears throat> until much more recently, I I didn't really have like a plan as far as I, I didn't really have a specific plan as far as like what my, even what my goals were career wise. Mm -hmm. Um, because I had moved to New York with this, I think I talked before with, with a very specific goal of working with Zorn and, and there's a lot of positive aspects about that, but my goal kind of ended there and I didn't know what would be, I assumed everything would fall into place after that. And, um, and that's not necessarily realistic. I mean, I think that puts too, maybe too much, um, and reverence isn't the right word, but like, it's just like, you have to think things through a little mm -hmm. bit better than I did. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it was, it was just all this, all these things swarming around in my head at the same time. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, the story, I, I, I haven't talked about it that much, not mm -hmm. like it's any, uh, whatever, it's just part of the journey, but I haven't talked about it specifically, but I think it's relevant to your question mm -hmm. is that the first time Rashanim went to Europe, we, we got hooked up with a, we had the album out on Sadiq already. Mm -hmm. And that was the whole thing when I learned about like, if you have an album out on, on a label that's somewhat established, even if people have never still really heard of you, that like in the old model of putting out actual mm -hmm. albums, um, <clears throat> pre real, you know, real digital distribution that like gets you in the door mm -hmm. and then you can, you know, get hooked up. We got hooked up with a manager, um, who was in Germany and booked several tours and smaller gigs for my trio. So we were like starting to keep Shabbos, but hadn't really made the commitment to being Shomer Shabbat. And the first, the first gig we got in Europe was this little three-day mini festival. And in order to do it, um, I think the, our first show was on a Saturday or Sunday night. I flew out Friday night, and it was um, Shabbos Shuva. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I kind of like, I was like, oh, great. This is like the most like melodramatic thing in the world. Here I am at this crossroads. I'm becoming observant, which is meaning has increasing meaning to my wife and I, as far as ourselves and starting a family and all this, my, my, my oldest was not born yet. Um, but it was a little before he was born, maybe a year, a year and a half before he was born. And I'm flying out uh, on the plane to go to Europe to play with my band, something I've always like dreamt about. Right. Um, this, I mean, very romanticized note, you know, my friends and I, when we were like in high school, used to talk about, Oh, go on tour and all the people will come see, you know, not knowing anything about how it really happens, but going out and like feeling so conflicted. Mm. Like I remember like kind of like not sneaking out, but like walking from my house to the, from my apartment in Park Slope to the, to the, uh, cab and like mm -hmm. hoping that nobody's walking on the way to shul seeing me. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. and looking back, it's like, okay, well, you know, observance takes time. It's a huge change in your life. Like, but there wasn't anybody that I, I mean, my wife knew I was conflicted, but like, it wasn't, you know, something that I was like talking to anybody about. Mm -hmm. So, and then I was like, 
was so just like distraught on the plane, like mm. so happy and so conflicted. So yeah. I somehow got some like paper and a pen and wrote this like journal entry. I never kept a journal and haven't really kept a journal since, but wrote this whole thing and then kind of like realized that what I want to do, and this was the first setting of this, maybe the beginning of this kind of goal is that I want to, I, I want to do both. Hmm. So I want to be able to be observant and committed to Yiddishkeit and being Shomer Shabbat, all of that, but I don't want to give up music hmm. and I don't want to give up be, basically playing secular music. I don't mm -hmm. want to give up playing the kind of music that I love. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, secular music only in terms of like the community and the genre and stuff, like right. whether it obviously has a religious significance, but not, not necessarily music like in the Orthodox world, whatever that means. But like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing, but there has to be a way to do it where I'm not getting on a plane Friday night feeling really conflicted and all of that. Right. So, yeah. So, um, um, I'm trying to think. So, well, so, so that was like, it took me another probably year and a half before I was really committed to being Shomer Shabbat. And it was kind of like, well, I'm going to keep going. And I still didn't really have any like music career goals. Um, I knew that I'd probably be working a non-music day job for the time being, especially since by that time my son was born, mm -hmm. but the music was still growing and I was meeting more people. And I'll tell you that the first time well, I had two interesting experiences that I'll tell you about. And the, this is kind of like, uh, the, um, the, uh, what do you call it? The, not the symbol, but I can't think of the right word. Like th this, this is, was very typical of what happened mm -hmm. time and time and time again. So in 2006, Rashanim got an offer to go to Austria to play at this big world music festival. And we had played some pretty nice gigs. This, um, manager in Europe had gotten us some nice stuff. And, um, but this festival contacted me directly and I had already said, you know, kind of, okay, well, when the next offer comes, it's Shabbos comes first. If I can do the gig, I'll do it. But Shabbos comes first. Hmm. Um, and I remember getting the email and I, and I looked at the website and saw all these great people playing on it. And we were like one of the only bands that they had asked from America. I, I don't know why. Um, but it was partly cause Frank London, who now is in Zion 80 and was, has been in the cosmetics and stuff. We had talked about doing something together and he was being featured at that festival. And maybe he mentioned to them that we had already talked about doing. So we did a gig with him. It was my trio plus him at this festival. Hmm. And I wrote the guy back and I said, um, I'd love to do it. Um, but let me just tell you that, you know, I explained Shabbat to him and what, I don't know, he maybe didn't know what it was or whatever. Uh -huh. And, uh, and so we're restricted in this way to when we're going to play. Right. And he wrote me back like a couple hours later and said, okay, well, how about Friday afternoon at 3 PM? And you know, you said you have to be done by eight, you'll be done by five. It's plenty of time. Well, and I was like, yeah. wow, that was easy. <laughs> kind of easy. Yeah. And okay. Like Friday at 3 PM is not maybe the best time to play a gig. But he said, don't worry, there'll be people there. It's all day. It goes from 11 to midnight every night. And it's, you know, it does really well. And I was like, okay, great, let's do it. And we did it. And it was like, to him, it didn't, it, Shabbat didn't matter to this guy. It just mattered when can he get here? When's the plane coming in? When's his slot? Make sure he has water on the stage and go and gonna give him a check and go on to the next guy. Right. 
you know, and there were, I mean, there were literally like, there were a lot of West African musicians there. There was a great, um, Kowali, uh, you know, like a Sufi devotional music from Pakistan. I mean, it was like amazing music, some classical music, some like really out jazz. And it was just like, it was, it was, uh, it was easy, you know? And, yeah. um, and that's certainly not to say that, that I haven't turned down a lot of gigs on Shabbat. And at first it was hard, but I feel like now, you know, this friend of mine, um, Peter, who, who introduced me to Karbach, or at least told me the music that I already knew was written by Karbach. Uh -huh. Um, he, he said to me once, and it's, it's like such a cliche thing to say, but the way he said it, he said, you know what? Maybe the, maybe the Shabbos gigs that you're getting an offer for that you feel like you're turning down and losing something, maybe those gigs were not really ever meant for you. Hmm. And it's just a little thing you have to say, no, I'm not doing that. It's like, no, this, you know, this opportunity, I, I don't need it. You know, it'll be fine without it. Um, and that was kind of going back to the Kenny Werner thing of, uh, of like, I remember him saying, you will, you will play at your best when you have something unarguably more important than music in your life. Wow. So that music doesn't, so that g having a bad gig is not the end of the world for you. Right. You know, and I remember him actually telling me when you have kids, you're going to play better. And, <laughs> and I was like, I wouldn't, wasn't even married. I wasn't religious at the time. He's like, are you kidding? If I have kids, my, my music life is over. Right. You know, cause everybody <laughs> has told me like, Oh, you better give up these childish dreams when you have real responsibilities. Right. Right. You know, but he said, you know, when, when you have a family and kids and something else that's more important to you. So, so that's kind of what it's been. And, um, the other, the, I'll tell you the funny thing mm -hmm. about Zorn is that for like in the interim, I was like still for a little while, I was like, a few times I had gone to Europe and played or traveled on, on Shabbat. But in New York, I decided this was my like gradual step in New York. I'm not taking any gigs on Shabbos. Okay. So Zorn, um, called my trio for a series of gigs at tonic. Um, you know, this, uh, this great club that used to is no longer on the mm. Lower East side used to exist there. Um, and, uh, it was like when it was over Hanukkah. It must have been 2006 or 2007. No, but by 2007, we were already definitely Shomer Shabbat, 2005, mm. 2006. It was like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Okay. So I, and I've told him about this afterwards. So he calls me and he's like, can, can you guys do all four nights? Wait, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah, all four nights. It's Hanukkah. It's for, it's for uh, celebration, whatever, mm -hmm. new music. So I... I was on the phone and I pretended that I was looking at my schedule book <laughs> and that I had like another gig on Friday night. I was just like, oh, you know, oh yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. I was, it was so So ridiculous. why did you feel like you, you couldn't tell him straight that you were keeping Shabbos at that point? Did, was that like a thing with him or, or? No, I think I was just like kind of embarrassed. Uh -huh. It must have been, or, or knowing that it would be like in that world, it's like, what do you mean? Like, okay, you right. can like have dinner and then go to the gig. Like, what's the problem? Like, like I knew it would start a whole conversation that to be honest, I, I didn't know necessarily how to answer right. the questions or maybe I still felt conflicted about it. I don't know. Well, it's interesting when you say that world, like what I'm picturing is a musical world 
where there's some kind of Jewish consciousness, meaning it, there's yes. Jewish themes in the music, there's cultural things. Yeah. So what is what was your feeling being in that scene? Meaning, did, did you feel, I mean, I'm, I've, I'll just preface it to say that I have felt that in certain, let's say Yiddish or proudly Jewish cultural contexts, mm -hmm. Uh, I'm kind of what you're like what you're saying with the um, the festival organizer who was like Shabbos. Oh, no big deal. Sure, <laughs> you know the, yeah. it's it's a much bigger deal <laughs> when because it's maybe I, I don't know threatening. I would say or, or something yes. that I mean it's cha it's more challenging than with yeah. just someone non-Jewish just like okay Shabbos no problem like yes. that's your belief that's cool you know rather than like why if you believe that that means that something you feel like something's wrong with what I believe you know <laughs> right like, right so. Did, did you, uh, did you Absolutely. experience that then? Do you experience that now? Like what, what's, uh, how, how does that, um, in that kind of scene that, you I know. don't think, I, yeah. Well, well, so I'll tell you what happened in this mm -hmm. particular time. And then I'll tell you what I think about that generally, because mm -hmm. we were talking about when we talked before and, and, and it was, I was thinking about it afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. but, but so I did that and he was like, okay, so Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. Okay. Fine. Okay. So I'll, I'll find somebody else to do the Friday night. And then, you know, we just went on and did the other stuff. And it was Hanukkah, so Shabbos was so early that it was no problem to come back on Saturday. Right. So we played Wednesday, great. We played Thursday, great. And I'm leaving. <laughs> and he was like, hey, man, you know, great job. And uh, have a good Shabbos. Right. <laughs> just very matter-of-factly. And I was like, what? He knows. <laughs> like, I could have probably told him. And it would have been right, like, right. oh, okay, you're doing that now. All right, whatever. You know, more power to you. <laughs> I guess I won't call you on Friday anymore. Yeah. And then I came back on Saturday and, and, uh, he was like, he, he said, how was Shabbos? And I was like, uh, it was great. Thanks. You know, like, <laughs> like it didn't matter. Like if, you know, it was just as it, it, it to him, it wasn't any different than if another musician said, Oh man, sorry. I, I'm, I have a gig that night. I can't do it. Right. But what, was just that, like, you're busy. Was that an anomaly then? Were, 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 I mean, among the, the kind of Jewish musicians or musicians playing that Jewish themed music, was it a very unique thing for someone to actually keep Shabbos? Yes. Is, is it the, now? Yes. Still. Uh -huh. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, and I feel like that's why for me, I mean, I love all the musicians that I work with. There is a very special thing because in, in Rashanim, I was the only Shomer Shabbos person. Mm -hmm. So the band knew what the deal was. Right. And, um, and that's fine. It wasn't like we were like on the road all the time. It wasn't, uh, and they were totally cool and supportive of it very right. much. So, um, and in Zion 80, there are two other, um, Shomer Shabbos, um, members and other people who are, who keep it to some extent and are interested and will come to like dinners and things like that. And it's really nice to know that I have like, you know, cause many times I would come a day early and then meet up with the guys after Shabbos. And mm -hmm. that's fine. I'm happy to do that. I've done that many times, but mm -hmm. when you have a couple people in the band that are traveling with you and doing the same thing, right? it's, it's really nice on that level. I feel like it strengthens the community of the whole band to do that. Mm-hmm. And it also is like, allows me to delegate some of the responsibilities like, like, um, Greg wall, my tenor saxophone player who not only is Shomer Shabbos, but is a Rav, uh -huh. he is like in charge of finding food for us. Right. Okay. Like every gig is like, okay, find the food. And then, and chances are like, he knows, you know, if there's an observant community in the town or city, he knows somebody. Uh -huh. 
you know, like when we went to Milan in 2015, he like made the arrangements for us. It was amazing. Wow. Cool. Um, and the Shabbos experiences have been wonderful in these places, whether we're by necessity doing it on our own or finding, <laughs> making some arrangements and, you know, like getting dropped off right before Shabbos and picked up right after Shabbos. Like it's always kind of right. an adventure. Wow. Um, but the other thing that happened at this Zorn gig was that another one of the musicians on, after the gig on Saturday night came up to me and said, man, you didn't play last night because of Shabbos? <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, now I'm going to have to defend this. And he's just like, he puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, that is so cool. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, you guys like do like the candles and, and like the blessings and everything. And I was like, yeah, well, we're, you know, we're learning and da, da, da. And he's like, man, that's cool. Because um, he grew up with it and, and isn't Shomer Shabbos now, but he had like a, an appreciation for it. Right. You know, and, and, and that kind of further underscored to me, like they, they can serve if, if the priority, if, if things are set up right, if the priorities are clear and I'm not like beating my head against the wall all Shabbos because I'm not doing a gig. Right. And I know why I'm doing it. Then it can real the two things really enrich each other. Um, I think you know, but I mean, t you know, to me, I mean, uh, you know, um, if you're going to do Shabbos, you have to do Shabbos. So, so, like, so then the obvious question would would be: You probably asked this, have uh, been asked this before, but so in terms of, you know, obviously as a professional musician who's not necessarily on on superstar level or, or whatever. Yeah. I don't know what your the situation in terms of, uh, which I'm interested to, you know, in terms of how you make it all happen, but yeah, so, not superstar. You know, that's correct. <laughs> well, no, well, I mean, yeah, to me, you're a superstar, you know, no, um, and I'm sure, I'm sure at home you're a superstar. Right. But, well, um, I, th I think to at least one of my children. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, you, you, you know, you're, I mean, uh, um, that doesn't, uh, anyway, the, the, yeah, yeah, no, no. the, so the, the idea of kind of um, the approach, let's say, for, for a musician who's anything but, you know, let's say has inheritance and just living off whatever, right. that, meaning one who right. has to be can be um, constantly in, in looking out for opportunities to keep yeah. their career going. So that the it seems, I was just actually listening to an interview today um, with, a, with a percussionist named uh, Taku, I forget his, his last name, he was a... He was in on the you know another podcast, the Drummers Resource uh -huh. Podcast, and he he was basically saying his advice to a uh, musicians getting their career going was you have to just take everything you know anything that yeah, comes yeah, your yeah. way yeah. Yes. you know you have to be open to everything and taking everything. So so do you get that? How do you feel in terms of? I mean, I think maybe you kind of answered this already in terms, uh -huh. of, but how do you approach that aspect of things? That that um, there's amount of you know a certain amount of um, gigs and particularly Friday night is a pretty common night to, right. to, to have gigs that in terms right. of, from a financial perspective, how right. do you see that? Well, that was kind of like when I was, when I was doing this and knowing that I wanted to kind of do both and not compromise on either. Right. Um, I kind of, I think in the back of my mind, resign myself to like, well, I'm going to have to do something else and still do music professionally, but figure out a way to make it work. And that was because the model that I had in mind is that, and, and it was true for the, the majority of musicians still that I know who are full-time musicians are on the road a lot, mm -hmm. a lot, a lot, a lot. And Shabbos or not, I, I don't, even if I'm 
if it is not uh, conflicting with Shabbos, I still wouldn't want to be away from my family for that long. Right. Even if I was spending Shabbos in a different city and not playing that night. But um, so I, I, the, the situation that I've been in since then has been doing other work. Um, that Can you say other, said, other work, with, with, for just for, for example, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, no, no. So, so I very, was very um, lucky to get a job <laughs> when we moved here to New York because mm-hmm. being a musician full-time, even not even being close, we moved in, in 2000 and got married in 2001. In 2000, the, the, our wedding, like as I mentioned to you, was the very first, like very first inkling of doing anything Jewish. Right. So a year before that, it was like the reason I thought I wasn't going to be able to be a full-time musician in New York was because I was just terrified to be in the music scene in New York. Okay. <laughs> no other reason. Okay. Um, so I got a job um, that eventually turned into a kind of graphic design job mm-hmm. and learn how to do graphic design. And then eventually switched over to more web-focused design and technology stuff, all through like on the job, jumping in and doing it, not through any formal training. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very common in that field. And luckily there's a lot of resources and things like that, which I've made <laughs> quite good use of uh-huh. by necessity. So over time I've done, I went through a period of time where I was freelancing. Um, and then our, our, my wife's work situation changed. So, so, um, I now work for a Jewish media organization and I do their design and technology. Cool. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a big confluence of things that I, um, enjoy about it. I've learned a lot in the music world that helps me in the other world and vice versa. And working at a Jewish organization is great because you don't have to explain anything. And, um, you know, the, the schedule is that the place is closed on every hog. Right. So it's pretty, it's pretty good. (laughs) Have you been, do you apply your design skills to your, to marketing your band? Is that something you've been, uh, you've been doing a lot of? Yes, definitely. Like I've made all the websites for the different groups and um, do all the social media, the design, things like that. I mean, uh, for the albums on Sadiq, Zorn has a great artist and designer that he works with. But like I did the first Sinidi cover mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. And, and, and to me, it very much is like what we were talking about before the whole and which really speaks to something that I've been interested in since I was a kid basically is the whole DIY right. aesthetic of, um, like, I think I mentioned, like I, I was, and still am very, um, influenced by the Washington DC punk scene yeah, around like discord records and how they would have these all ages shows and in unusual spaces and it would be $5 and they, you know, they're driving the van to the gig and lugging out their stuff. And it's just very, like they're involved on every level. Right. Um, and that really still speaks to me. I, I would at some point like to be <laughs> doing this and not doing everything, but, right. um, you well, know, how do but, you, how do you find, I mean, practically, I mean, first of all, how do you find the time with, with a, with a, you know, especially with a day job that you have other yeah. responsibilities and a family yeah. and, and other, you know, the, the obviously you got to keep the music up. You got to keep your chops up and, yeah. and keep writing. And, uh, you know, how do you find, I'm, I'm just, I'm asking, <laughs> how do you find yeah, the time? Yeah. You know, because this is something I struggle with 
Uh, and maybe I take on too much. You know, maybe I'm right. like between, uh, it's not just my band. It's also, I mean, it sounds like you're doing the same thing, a record label, you know, yes. recording studio, you know, it's yep. like, yep. Um, so yeah. like, is it, you get super organized? Like what, what, what is your, what, how do you, how are you approaching it? That you don't feel like either a overwhelmed or b neglecting something very important. Like you have a detail of the, you know, your record release that you just overlooked because there's nobody, you know, right, uh, right, right, pointing right. it out to you that you missed it. Like I, I, for example, I'll just give you an example. I, I made business yeah. cards for my recording studio. I was handing them out yesterday and then, and it was actually your bass player who was like, um, he tried to, to call me and he's like, it's not working. I was like, Oh, I put the wrong number on my card. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> you know I mean? That kind of quality yeah. control stuff yeah. is just, it, yes, I hear that. So how um, do you, how do you approach that? That question? Um, that's a good question. And, the, I mean, in a word, it's trying to be as organized as I can be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, and then carving out time, um, carving out specific times that I'm working and knowing exactly, you know, what it is that, that I need to do and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, or that I think I need, you know, as well as I can plan. Um, right. so yeah, I mean, I have like, uh, um, like this app that's like a great to-do list app. And, uh, every once a week I wake up early one day and like go through my whole to-do list and then hmm. the whole to-do list in big picture and then write down the things that I want to accomplish that week. And then every day try to do like two or three of those things. And then I have certain times that I'm like, okay, you know, like, um, like, uh, usually like Wednesday and Thursday nights are like music, you know, I'm trying to focus on either writing or recording or something, right. something actually in the music. And then on Sunday, I take a couple hours and I mean, I, I, I work kind of all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, when Shabbos is early enough, I'll can grab like an hour or two, let's say Shabbat. Um, so do you actually schedule like, like this is, this is music time for this. This is social media time. This is, uh, you know, marketing time you actually have that in your schedule? Not that specific, but more or less. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like I have a time, I usually do it like Sunday night or Monday night. I will, um, like do my to-do list for that week. And right. yeah. So that sounds and then, like a good, like a good practice. Yeah. Like on Friday before Shabbat, I can usually grab a little bit of time, especially with later Shabbat. I'll try to record for an hour. If not, I do it like Mozi Shabbat or Thursday night or Wednesday night. So where, so okay, now here comes the big question. So where yeah. does, so where does time with your family come in? That's a good question. And, um, and that's been a hard thing to, to, uh, negotiate all of that. Right. And, um, I mean, for sure, Shabbat, I always try, obviously not only to be not doing work, I wouldn't do that, but like right. to make time to, I try to learn with each of my kids on um, mm -hmm. Shabbos and like try to do like one activity with them. Like, and which is maybe a little bit too like, okay, we're going to play a game now and we're going to have fun and it's going to be 32 minutes right. and then you're going to go to bed, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but like to try to carve out that time as well. So Shabbos, uh, but do you, do you make time during the week also? Do you, yeah. Do you have um, it scheduled or is it, is there a spontaneous time? Um, I'll just tell you for me, for me, I schedule, I'll just tell you that it, it's yeah. that that's, an ongoing uh, process, yeah, to make sure that that you know everyone at home is is happy, uh, particularly, uh, particularly my wife, yeah, and, yeah. and so there there's like seriously etched out times, yeah, um, that 
you know that, that I I'm having to learn to shut down and be yes. on time yeah. for you know it's, yeah <laughs> um, yes absolutely I hear that what, what one thing that came to mind as you were saying that 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 I do try to do that I probably could do a little better at is um, that I that I started about a year ago that when I come home from work mm-hmm. from then until when they go to bed I my phone I'm not on my That's phone great. and I'm yeah. with them. But often that's like logistics. It's like, okay, Jake yeah. needs to go to soccer practice and Talia has a music lesson and, Ellie, right. you know, like Ellie has to, you know, has a math assignment or whatever, you know, whatever. Like, yeah. um, and my kids are seven, 10 and 12 now. So they each have their own schedules. Um, well, nice. yeah, yeah, but it's that. And then, you know, like, like also, um, a lot of it is like, I mean, I think I'll tell you like one dynamic in my relationship with my wife where I'm coming from is like, is like, like the thing that she always hears me say is I don't have enough time to work. I don't have enough time to work. Right. You know, <laughs> I've, I've learned not to say that, 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 that yeah, got yeah, me yeah, in yeah. It's trouble. good not to say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but a couple months ago, our friends were here and we were talking and, and, um, and we have a friend who lives in Brooklyn, who's an artist. And she was talking about having you know, the importance of having time carved out, um, to do your work. And, and after that, my wife and I talked, she said, you know what, why don't you take two hours every Sunday morning? That'll be your time, not interrupted, all that. And, and that has been huge, Hmm. really huge, um, to have two hours of uninterrupted time. I rarely have that much time uninterrupted. Um, you mean mean when you're at home, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So like from seven to nine Sunday morning, like that's like Abba time. Okay. <laughs> you know, and then that makes me um, obviously really value that time. But at the same time, like tomorrow, for example, is July 4th. So I'm not going to work. My kids don't have school. So right, like, right. I'm totally like, I have already carved out that time, not doing work tomorrow where I don't even know what we're doing. But right, right. you know, that's like family time, even if it's like go to the movies or go out to lunch, whatever. But you know, and, and I think we've both seen the value of compromise in both ways. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So, and and then in terms of, okay, so now you have all that stuff. So you have your, your day job, you have, you know, this music career that you're, you're building and, and working yeah. on a number of different levels, your family that you're, um, you know, being present for, and, you know, um, obviously, you know, as a, as a primary priority and then, then. So then what about religious obligations? <laughs> now, now, now you have to That's, carve out time you've, you know, yeah, as a religious Jew, davening yeah. and, and, and yeah. learning. And so how, where do you, uh, how do you fit, how do you fit that in both psychologically and, and time-wise? Do you, is that, does that become, a, I mean, a fuel for what you're doing or, or do you sometimes struggle with, with, um, with that? If you don't mind, you know. Um, yeah, I, I think a bit of both. And, I remember, um, do you know Dove Bear Pinson? Yes, yes. So I remember him saying once years ago that, I'm trying to think what it was. Um, he said, Some, you know you should do something if you, you don't want to do it while you're doing it and then afterwards you feel good that you did it. Mm-hmm. And you know maybe you shouldn't be doing something if you, it's, it's enjoyable while you're doing it. And then afterwards you wish you didn't do it. Right. So to me, the metaphor I always think of is food. Like yeah. if I make a reasonable size portion of healthy food 
I'm like, this isn't enough. I want more or that stuff or right, whatever. Right. And then an hour later when I'm not craving anymore, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I did that. That was healthy versus like taking three pieces of cake and like, it's great while it's happening, but then it's like not right. so good. Um, so I, um, I always try to think, I always kind of repeat myself as like a self, my, my wife is a, um, is a therapist, is a mm-hmm. clinical therapist. So I've learned that this is called, I can't remember what it's called. Oh, she would kill me if she, if I, I couldn't remember it. <laughs> it's like self-talking. It's like, there's like almost like a higher version of yourself and you're trying to like, you're trying to like give yourself the motivation as a higher version of yourself. There's a cycle. It's like self positive self-talk or something like that. Okay. Yeah. It I, don't like know what it, I don't know what it, it is. It sounds either, like so. a self-helpy thing, but it's a, it's like a real thing. Yeah. But I always say to myself, like, you know, when I'm setting the alarm and know that I have to set it earlier. So I have time to daven. like, think of one time you've ever davened and then afterwards you regretted it. Right. And I never, I never have. <laughs> right. If anything, it's like, oh, I wasn't so present, but I did it. And same with learning, even if it's five minutes. So, you know, I don't know. I just, I just well, make sure to, to have the time to do it. So sure. So get, I mean, obviously getting, you know, if you know something is, is, is meritorious to do and then you yeah. do it and you feel yeah, yeah. good for having done it. Uh, but, you know, obviously as someone, you know, speaking to someone who, who didn't grow up with that obligation, you know, right. there's, there's no, not necessarily any, uh, as an iconoclast, any external person that's going to make you, you know, you know, accept, you know, that, oh, I didn't do this. So therefore, you know, I feel bad about it. Right. Um, meaning we don't have to, it's like, I, I have an experience when I, you know, sometimes that it's like, I'd, I'd like to get to, I want to get to play, you know, and I only have a certain amount of time and I'm, I'm in yeah. school and I just like, let me get, get this done and let me get yeah. over there. And I obviously yeah, that's yeah. not the ideal, right. but, but the, but at the same time, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I don't have to, do, you know, I don't have to dive in. Right. And I'm saying like, meaning it's something I, well, there, there's this, there is that sense of like religious obligation and potential right. guilt and that, but I'm, I'm talking from the level of, let's say getting to the level or, or experiencing the level of this is what I want to do, you know, cause right. I feel, I feel right. like some, right. somewhat right. that, that some, that yeah, I, know, I know a lot of people experience davening and, and a religious, religious observance that way. Like this is an obligation. I believe in it. I believe in it's right. true. I believe in it's important. Right. Um, I feel like as a musician, maybe we have a potential that's a little bit deeper in the sense of not really putting up with doing something because you have to, not not to say that you don't do it <laughs> because right. you don't want to, but right. that to transform an activity, especially like you were saying, the singing around the Shabbos table, relating to, to prayer as, as a part of music is, I guess, what yeah. I'm getting at, as, as meaning something to, do you ever have that experience where, the, where these, you know, religious obligations become a, kind of a timeless or an enjoyable experience or a motivated and passionful experience as the experience of the, the passion you have for, for music? Or, 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 or are they kind of more of a separate approach to things? Or do they overlap a little bit? That's, um, that's a really good question. I think that I, uh, I definitely do enjoy the aspects of observance very often. 
I mean, I can't honestly say all the time, Mm -hmm. but because of the, you know, whatever we were just talking about, but when I do feel connected and, and that I'm enjoying it, it, it doesn't, to me, it's a different thing than the, than the joy from music, Mm -hmm. not better or worse. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just a different feeling to me. Honestly, it reminds me in just saying internally of the feeling that I used to get when I did meditation, Uh that it has a meditative aspect to it. And certainly the, the singing and and that aspect of singing around the Shabbos table or, or hollow at shul or something, it obviously has a musical component to it. But it's in a way, it's like um, I feel like I at its best or like a peak experience or whatever you, you want to say, I feel like it's it's kind of like the it's so hard to put into words, but like the um, there's something about you know, it is actually very simple. It's, Mm -hmm. it's the feeling of letting go. Right. I think. And, and the whole thing that Kenny Werner talks about where like the highest musical experience is where you're letting go and the music is playing through you. Mm. And I think it's that aspect that I feel with, whether it's davening or whatever religious observance. Um, yeah, so I definitely do that, but it's not, I mean, I'll be very honest with you. Normally on weekdays, just schedule wise and other things, I take my kids to, the bus and then go to work, whatever. And I, I work from home two days a week mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm in the city three days a week. I'm usually, I usually daven shachris at home mm-hmm. and then I try to catch a minion for mincha and I end up davening Mariv at home. That's like my usual weekly during the weekday. That's what I usually do. I'm trying to, to um, bring my kids to shul more on Friday night and Shabbos mincha. But I mean, I daven at home more than I do at shul. Um, and I, 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 uh, I'm not necessarily happy about that, but that's the reality of it. So I think that actually does lend itself more towards like, it can be a little bit more like obligation driven because mm-hmm. you don't have a minion. You're not surrounded by other people. Right. You're not in the space where prayer happens, even though I've, you know, we've all been to like weekday mincha when it's like, da, 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 right. you know, <laughs> right, right. Um, and, but, but at the same time, I do think there's a certain value in that because it's like there, there is a lot of value in like, okay, I did, I did my job for today. It might Mm -hmm. not have been a hundred percent, even though it should have been on some level, but I did it. I fulfilled my obligation and that will hopefully set the stage for me to, you know, be deeper into it next time. Or whatever. Yeah, that might be a that might be a cop out on some level. I, no, also. I, don't, I don't know. I, I, mean, I also I also think that there's a value. I, I, you know, I agree with you, and I, but I also think there's a value in, as you said before, about beginning to um, observe Shabbos. That it it's not an all or nothing equation. There, there's right. there's room for a lot of growth, and right. you know, sometimes some of the more tangible things take precedence unnecessarily over some of the intangible things just because they're easier to, to put your finger on. Yeah. But the, the kind of personal growth where, where a person is really conquering inner obstacles and becoming a much kinder person and, and being more balanced and, you know, organized and, and given over to, to their, um, you know, to their wife and, you know, being a better father. I mean, those things are right. much hard, you know, that those mitzvahs are, are much harder to, to quantify, you know, in, in a short, at least in a short period of time. And, yeah. um, whereas, you know, davening, I can check that off. Right. <clears throat> so, right. so it's, it's sometimes we, I think we put the, 
um, the emphasis, you know, at least sometimes in, in, in a, a more superficial way that it, things have to be done in this certain way. And then there's, there can be a sense of guilt if it's not done in that certain, certain sense of way, as opposed right. to taking a, a bigger picture approach and seeing the whole prod, you know, one's whole life and as a, as a ongoing project of growth where yeah. I mean, when I, for a while, I, I mean, I had this experience where I, I didn't go to shul during the week um, at all for, for a period of time. And I was, I would stay home and played music you know, I would, uh-huh. and I'd, I'd put on to fill in, you know, <laughs> um, right. and get that. And, and it was actually, I mean, it, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to anyone, but what happened was I, I started to, you know, shul became, because it was true, was a burdensome thing. And it wasn't that I wanted to throw it off. It was that I, I needed, I knew I needed a new approach to it, to, to, to a way that, that it would become more sustainable for me. Right. So, so eventually I found that I, I would go to, into a shul and I would just be able to sit there and kind of relax and kind of distance myself from the normal running pace of life. Right. And it felt really good just to sit there. And that, and that kind of reintroduced me to actually going to, going to shul to, to Davin, right. to, wow. to feeling that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a burden to have to be there that I actually enjoyed being there. Um, but it's an ongoing process, you know, it's right. like, for sure. Um, yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. So, um, no, cool. I appreciate you, you know, you, you sharing that. I mean, that, that's, yeah, yeah. so, so let's, if you don't mind to, to switch gears a little bit, let's get to, sure. so you, you were playing with Rashanim. Yeah. Um, so how did you get from Rashanim to, to Zion 80? What, what's, what was the, the progression there? Um, so Rashanim, like I mentioned, started in 2003. And then mm-hmm. our second album was an album of Zorn's music called Masada Rock. Mm-hmm. And then we did a third one, which I called Shalosh. And then um, I moved from Brooklyn to Riverdale in 2007. And we lived in Riverdale for two years and then moved up to White Plains in Westchester County, where we are now. Mm-hmm. And um there was a period of a few years where, you know, again, like I said, I didn't necessarily see a way that I could be a full-time musician other than being on the road all the time. Mm -hmm. So I had kind of resigned myself to this, um, thing of doing other work. And I was kind of freelancing at the time, but then Roshanim kind of started to like, started to, to, to peter out a little bit in terms of like, I didn't really know what the next step was. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a really difficult time for me. And um, my drummer, Matthias Kunzli, he was starting to go on the road, I think at the time, with different people. He's been on the road since then several times with Regina Spector mm-hmm. and has since moved to Los Angeles. So okay. there was that consideration of Rashanim. But it honestly, like, it felt like I didn't want to stop doing Rashanim, but it just kind of. Like it felt like we had an upward momentum for a few years. And then if the thing that we would have needed to do is like start really touring, maybe two or three times a year for several weeks at a time. And we didn't do that um, for various reasons. And and I didn't really see how we could do that mm-hmm. at that point with little kids and all this. Shanir was also getting very busy and was on the road a lot. So I kind of felt like for a few years, I didn't really know what I was gonna do. And I, um, 
I just kept telling myself, like, you just have to keep, you have to do something. So I started, I was Were you getting to, calls as, as a, to do freelance playing? Was, was that, or you were mostly, as a, mostly the work you did was as a leader? Yeah, as a leader, pretty infrequently. And I remember actually having a talk with Matthias at the time. I don't even know where he was when we were talking about it. And he was like, oh, somebody said uh, they were going to call you. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, who? He's like, I don't know. But they said they assumed you were like really busy and you're just like a, a leader. So you don't want to do any sideman work. <laughs> and I was like, those two things are both completely wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not busy. And why wouldn't I want to play with other people? Right. It's right. just like, he's like, oh, I don't know. I guess they I was like, man, I haven't had a game in three months. You know? <laughs> Come on. Um, um, so no, I, I mean, you know, kind of few and far between. And like once in a while, Rashanim would get a call to do a gig and, and it was really fun. And then it would just be like nothing for a long time. Um, so I had tried to do film and TV music and really like went head first into that, uh-huh. but in a bit of a naive way. And I didn't realize that among other things, the, the recording equipment that I had at the time wasn't really that good. And it was like a very basic interface. And I know people say, you know, it's not about the equipment, but like this, I wasn't able to make music that sounded quality wise, really professional. Well, how were you, how were you getting your foot in the, you had clients at that? I mean, or you had interest, how, how would one get their foot in the, in the door to, to do soundtrack work? I mean, I don't even know. I just, I started just like Googling, like, and okay. reading a few things and, and, literally writing like hundreds of emails to like, um, you know, the, like music houses that did commercials and okay. filmmakers and just IMDB. And like, it was, it was like, it was like not, I won't say it's in a panic, right. but I was like, okay, if I, if I email a thousand people, like somebody's going to say yes. Yeah. Like that was my, was my organizing <laughs> okay. principle. Okay. It wasn't like, okay, maybe a method might be good. You know, right. and, and honestly, I learned a lot and miraculously, like I got a few jobs out of it. Wow. Um, nothing big, but like I did some student films. I did like a corporate video. Um, the most fun that I had was doing a video for, for UJA on one of their campaigns. And I got to like music direct this video that it was like, um, you know, um, oh, what are they called? P- uh, playing for change. Do you know that organization? No. So I think they're still around. I hope they're still on. They do these very cool videos of like, I don't know if it's happening at the same time, but it's basically like they'll take like three musicians from different parts of the world and they'll film them playing like usually like outside in their town or city. And, but like, it'll be like a bass player in one place and a drummer in another place and a guitar player in another place and a singer in another place. Mm -hmm. And they'll make a song. Okay. And it's usually a cover. Like I think they did like, uh, you know, John Lennon, imagine, and maybe a Bob Marley song and like well-known songs. And I basically did that for UJA. We had musicians in New York and in Israel and in Moscow. And Hmm. we like arranged this huge thing. And I went into the studio and put this backing track down for a Motown tune and all these people saying it was really fun. Uh And that, and, but that was like a month (laughs) and then it was over. Right. Right. Um, and so it just kind of was like, it didn't feel like it had any momentum. So I'll just, I'll get to Zion sure. yeah. um, quicker than, than I could. I'm trying to, um, well, no, I mean, listen, I'm interested in the steps between. So, yeah, yeah. so, um, sure. cause that, you know, cause something music soundtrack 
work is definitely something that you know. I you know I have my, my studio and I compose. and yeah. that's something that I'm definitely have my my antenna out for those yeah. kind of opportunities. Yeah. Um, as well, that's what I'm interested in, you know. Yeah, yeah, you so, well, whatever. In, yeah, <laughs> I mean, one would get their foot in the door with such a thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, I, I didn't get my foot in the door. <laughs> <laughs> um, although now I see, well, you know, especially, not necessarily soundtrack work, but what I'm, what I'm really interested in now is in, is in sync licensing. Right, um, so. Right, and right. looking into that, which, which, uh, Herstan has a whole thing on his, yes. in his book. Um, and actually I got very close with a Russian Eam song, got very close to, the song being placed in a, in like a studio film, it didn't make it, but it kind of taught me how to like set up a publishing company and, and that it was possible, even though the music that was on there was actually professionally recorded music. It wasn't something that I had recorded. Uh Um, and I probably should have started there and said like, okay, is it possible for me to make stuff that sounds that good? And how would I do that? And maybe actually learn how to do it, Mm -hmm. which I feel like I'm doing now because I have a new studio set up and doing it a little smarter, but then I was not really so smart about it. I, I was like very determined and very naive. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, but during that time, one thing that happened was that Zorn kind of called me and said like, what's, what are you doing? And it kind of took me about, we actually went out to dinner um, and he was like, uh, you know, it doesn't really seem like Russian is doing anything. I know you, I know how much you love music but I don't really see you doing anything. Hmm. And that was like, he didn't mean it to be hurtful, but it was like, ah, oh, like he's right, hmm. you know? And so he asked me, he was like, make me a record, just make me a record. Hmm. And I just started working on this music that I've never released and like nobody else has hardly ever heard it. I put one or two little things out, but I started making this album of my own songs. Hmm. And it was like, completely internal and it was like happening in my basement and I was working freelance at the time. So I was like at home all the time, but that kind of sustained me just like, okay, I don't, I don't have any, anything happening external. Nothing is happening outside my house, Mm. but inside my house, I'm working on my craft. I'm playing Mm -hmm. guitar. I'm writing music. I'm recording. I know that it doesn't sound amazing, but I don't care. You know, when I had, I started sending him songs and he like, this is good. This is good. Keep going. So I think he knew that I just needed some encouragement and he's always been kind of like a mentor Hmm. for me in that, in those areas. So that was happening and gig here and there. We Russian, he went to Poland in 2009 and played this really great festival there. Um, you know, but other than that, it was just this music. So one day in 2011, I'm like, getting uh ready for shabbos and i had oh it was shabbos already and i had been listening to fela kuti all mm-hmm. day the day before as i was working and i started singing a karabach song i don't remember mm-hmm. if it was in kilokanu or vashamru or some just humming it and the and the fela like percussion was still there hmm. in my head and like a little light bulb went off i was like jewish afrobeat hmm. jewish afrobeat that's great you know, like, mm-hmm. I wonder if I could do that. So after Shabbos, like right after Shabbos, I went on my phone or iPad or whatever, and I looked up if anybody had ever done it and <laughs> hadn't really ever been done. And and that was kind of the genesis of Zion 80. And several really, really fortunate things happened in a fairly short amount of time that got me to get the band up and running and playing and recording. And then, you know, we've just kind of gone from there. 
Um, but it's honestly, it's the first time, and, and I can go through those things what they were if you want or not, but it's the first time when I've ever, and it's all relative, but mm-hmm. it's the first time when I, when I've had anything that could be described as like momentum, hmm. <laughs> you know, like people like getting offers and getting offers for press and people noticing it and it going to places that I didn't think it would go, wow. you know? And, and that's so never happened. The, what was the biggest, so of those, of those things that were kind of indicative of that kind of momentum, what was, let's say the, the most significant one? Um, I think they were, they were kind of all significant in, in their own way. The, the, the two that stick out to me is for many years I had been bugging, like really bugging the Jewish culture festival in Krakow in Poland mm-hmm. to bring Rashanim emailing them every year and every other like, uh, maybe. And then it's a couple emails and then they're like, Nope, not going to happen this year. Uh-huh. And, um, I even met the curator at one point with Zorn. Zorn was supposed to go there and bring Sadik people and it didn't happen. And I kept like, literally it was like, I set a reminder for myself, like email them every, you know, like November, December, January. And okay. every year I would do it. Okay. So, the first gig that Zion 80 ever played, we weren't really called Zion 80 then. It was just, it was Rashanim plus some horns and another guitar. So it was, it was the trio plus Yoshi Fruchter was playing guitar and Frank London and Greg Wall, who are in the band now, were playing horns. Mm-hmm. And we played a show at Greg Wall's shul, which then he was, he was the rabbi at a shul on 6th Street in the city. Right. right. Um, the 6th Street Community Synagogue. And we played a show there. And the response was really good. It was a bunch of bands and Zorn actually played that night and Zorn heard this music and I had told him about it and he was like, this, this is good. You need to do this. Hmm. And I think he saw maybe in some way that it was like some way, I guess a, a deeper realization of this, like of this connection that I wanted to make between the music that I love and, and Yiddishkeit, Mm -hmm. you know, that it was like explicit at least in some way, because we were playing call box songs and things like that. And we were playing in the shul. So I made like a rough video on my phone of that night. And, and, uh, a day later I put it up on YouTube and two weeks later I get a call from the Krakow festival. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, are you serious? There's like, there's going to be a lot more people in the band than you saw in the video. And the video was already twice as big as the trio. So right. to me, all I'm thinking is, well, the other band is cheaper for you. So why don't you just bring them? Right. Not understanding, like, there's actually something compelling about the music. And he's like, he emails me. He's like, you know, because I knew him. He's like, hey, it's Janusz. You know, Karbach and Fela is amazing. We need it. We need it in Krakow. Wow. wow. But it wasn't only that. It was like, I talked to my wife about it and and whatever. And that was 2012. And we hadn't, we had, we had only played one gig. And I actually, I said no to the gig. Oh, wow. <laughs> because the music wasn't ready. I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it this year. I said, I said, let's do it next year. And I've never, ever done that before. Okay. <laughs> like I would do it if somebody offered me a gig on Shabbos. It was right. that same feeling of like, you know what? Actually, there's something more important than this because the music isn't going to be really formed. And at that point, I had already started to set up like this residency at the stone john zorn's club i saw you there that was was when i first saw you oh great cool yeah so that was like the first that we played every week and then we recorded and it really worked and we ended up going to krakow in 2013 and it was amazing 
And it was like, it felt very much like the right time to go. Um, and then the other, the other thing that happened was just getting a random email from Samuel Friedman at the New York times mm. that they want to write an article about us. And I was like, seriously? Mm. <laughs> Cause sometimes my first reaction is like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why? <laughs> You know, which I can't, I should never say. Well, is that because you've been so incredulous, trying to get that kind of attention for so many years that when it actually comes, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's not supposed to happen. Like it's not supposed to happen. It's supposed to be just more and more rejection, you know, more and more isolation. Right. And then I understood the, I don't know if it's Woody Allen or Groucho Marx, the, 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 um, that I wouldn't want to be a part of any club that would take me as a member. It's like, okay, just, and then at first I'm like, and cause I know Samuel Friedman as an author, I've read a bunch of his books Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I'm thinking it's like some intern writing for the music person there and they want to do a little blurb. And then I'm like, Samuel Friedman. He's like, yeah, you know, I work, I write in the religion section, but they, they, you know, I'm really interested in your band and they told me I can do something in the arts section. Wow. And they did like a feature on us in 2013 and it was amazing. And like, I mean, you know, that's like very much never happened before. <laughs> so, so a couple of just technical questions about the yeah, band. Yeah, so, yeah. um, first of all, regarding the size of the band yeah, and talking about, you know, taking practical steps to make a music career, you know, make your music right. career happen in a bigger way. <laughs> that's not so how does that make, how does it make any sense? I mean, it doesn't like, make any sense. How, how can, how could you even support a band? I mean, you know, how does that, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how does that no, work? No, no. Um, I mean, in a word, before I had the idea of being at the helm of a, or a co, co-leading, co-owning a label that's working with a bunch of different artists, right. using the different uh, skills that I have, using Chenier's skills, doing that, sync licensing, all this other stuff, making many recordings with many bands, I didn't have an, any idea of how it would ever actually become more than um, like a band like Zion 80 that does shows here and there and puts out a record every once in a while. Right. And is not sustainable in any way. I mean, thank God, you know, the gigs that we've gotten that, I mean, we've gone to Europe now like uh, four or five times Mm. and I'm always amazed that they like, yeah, we have the budget. Sure. The 10 plane tickets. That's fine. Wow. Um, you really, you really have a big band, you know, like a a Duke Ellington. I mean, yeah, you're not that, (laughs) not quite that big, but yeah. 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 It's 10 people. It's not unprecedented to, to support a, a true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But today's day and age, it's yeah. Today's day and age and and the level that I'm working (laughs) at, you know, like, um, and it's been very, very lucky, like through Zorn support and doing shows with him and then these shows on our own, um, you know, have been amazing. And, but it has also, you know, shown me the importance of like, well, okay, now you can take whatever kind of momentum and like leverage for lack of a better word that you have with sign 80 and put it into uh, a label that might also include a project that's like three people or four people or something we talk a lot about, we haven't really done is like taking Zion 80 plus a few more people. And then we, if you do that, you have the members of like four different bands in one group of people. So then we can offer that as like a, a tour package or a festival package. Um, things like that. Yeah. So it's, no, it's complete. It's, it's, and the crazy thing is like, it's completely not practical at all. It's not even practical to do a gig in New York. Right. Right. Because if, you know, if, 
if I want them in New York, they're out of town. If I want them out of town, then they have to stay here. You know, it's like always right. struggling. Like even yesterday when we did the video, there was only eight of us. Right. Um, two people couldn't be there. So that happens all the time. And, um, but it has also been really eye opening knowing that the thing that's been compelling for people booking us and people going into it is the music. And even though it's 10 people, there's still more momentum and more kind of success for lack of a better word than other, you know, any other project that I've done. Wow. Um, so that's not going to encourage me. I hope to make, Oh, well, maybe if I have 30 people, it'll be even more successful. Well, you know? I mean, I mean, I think you're, you, you've nailed it that the, the lesson is, is going for the compelling thing yes. and whatever form that takes, that's okay. Even if it doesn't make any sense. Right. And it's just a matter of finding like, you know, I'm not definitely for myself and for the band members. I'm not asking them to go on a two week tour for no money. Right. Of course. Um, I mean, like no way. Like I'd rather these are professionals and, and yeah. I'm sure many of them have families. And uh, totally. I mean, you, I mean, they, they, do you feel like the, the band members, it seems like the impression I got that they kind of have, they're, they're not just hired guns. They have a personal no. stake in the, in the yes. success of the band. Absolutely. And, and everyone in the band, I ask them to play because of their, of who they are and their personality. And, um, yeah, that's very much, you know, what it is. And I, and I have a great pool of subs that, that I use when I need to, but like the band is these people very much. So, cool. yeah. So, so, so in terms of, of the work you're doing, um, with, let's say working on the, the, the record release and the marketing and, and folding that into this, this unique record label idea. Yeah. So do you have a vision, um, f for a way to, to actually, um, you know, start to build, build a brand that, that, that has a, you know, kind of like Ari Thurston lays out in his book yeah. of, um, you know, uh, um, in terms of obviously growing that aspect of your, your, um, music career, um, or, or you are, I mean, is, is, do you have a certain vision of how that laid out or you're kind of just seeing how it's going to go? Um, or do you have particular goals be like, I would like to be doing this more, these kind of things much more in a, in a certain amount of years, or is it, yeah. you're just kind of leaving it open to, to where, you know, putting as, as much work as you can into it and seeing what happens. You're talking about generally or specifically, specifically like, like, like meaning, you know, um, to say, um, you know, within a, a certain amount of time. Right. I mean, right, I, right. I don't necessarily do it myself, but, but I, I kind of, I, I'm, I'm realizing I'm, I'm thinking in this way. Yes. It's like I'm doing this in X and Y and Z and I have other things going on and I'm, and I'm working towards a certain goal where this is really all I'm doing. You know, I mean, meaning the thing, I mean, I'm, I'm more and more moving to a doing place music. Where, where the things that I love are what I'm yes. spending my time doing yes. and figuring out a way that, that the income and the, and the passion somehow dovetail together and, and, Absolutely. You know, and not, yes. not leading me into places where I'm doing some kind of gig where I'm like looking at my watch and being like, you yeah. know, when is this going to be done? I want to get yeah. to do the stuff I really want to do, you know. Do you do music full time now? So right now I do. Uh -huh. um, I, have a, I have a degree in special ed. Which is one, which is a really great day gig because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, it's pretty flexible. I'm my, my own boss. I mean, I, I have, you know, it's freelance essentially. Uh -huh. um, even though, you know, I work in different schools and, and right. I, I work with the student, the student schedule for the most part. But, um, and second of all, I mean, I'm, the summer, you know, I'm not, 
is is completely off, you know. But and, right, and I also don't right. have I don't have any. I mean, I my student. I expect to have a full case of the students in the fall if I want to, right? But I have no right, contract. Right. I've you know if um, yeah. So that that's kind of that's kind of worked out really really well. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. So, but it's you know my for for just the and this is why I'm I'm really appreciative of you of your perspective on things and it's actually been very helpful for me because for for the you know the idea of just kind of getting out there as a musician to do it full time and to be open to possibilities and and at the same time being pursuing the the main source of passion and um and I I really like what you said about um during a time that was kind of a downtime for gigs that you kind of really went into a mode where um we really started to create in in your own you know um music from your own vision that that, yeah. that I find also inspiring and that's kind of what I've been doing oh, and during downtime to yeah. at least more and more you know more more making that a clear thing that I'm that I'm doing that that's let's say if I don't have a client this you know or I don't have a gig coming up in, in any you know that that I'm actually creating something I'm actually pursuing something and making something so that's I find that really um, yeah I think I think it's inspiring. really important to kind of have those things that are that are always there that you can go back to that are continuing to grow, um, to grow your career, your artistic vision. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think that's really important. Um, so to, so to get back to the question that you asked, it's funny because mm -hmm. as you're asking me, yeah. I, I, um, I'm looking at a, a, uh, document that's, uh, push pinned to my wall okay. that says marathon goals to June, 2017. Okay. <laughs> so in the, the Ari Herstam book, he talks about this thing of having very specific goals in one year, five years, 10 right. years, and 26 years. Right. And I read that in the book and I was like, Oh, that's good. I should do that at some point. Yeah. You know, especially the second time reading through, it's like, okay, this guy really knows what he's talking about. I really, I'm resisting doing that. So yeah. that's probably a sign that I should do it. <laughs> right. And I, I still didn't do it. And then um, there is a great podcast called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Okay. And it, again, sounds like self-helpy, but it's, how no. did I find her? I can't remember. There's this woman named Kathy Heller. She's a singer-songwriter in Los Angeles. Okay. And she makes her living. I'm trying to think where I heard her. Oh, so... Okay, so I heard her on another podcast put out by this place, Sync Tank, S Y N C Tank, okay. and they have a great podcast with like music supervisors and all all these people. Um, oh no no no, I'm sorry, I heard her. I, I'm like a podcast yeah junkie recently. Yeah, so I'm so am I. So oh okay, I'm great. writing all so, these down. So oh okay, great. So Sync Tank is great. It's very much about like sync licensing, but it's very good. They have they'll have like an episode with a lawyer and an episode with a music supervisor and things like that. So I definitely recommend that, and they have a blog also. There's don't keep your day job, which is great, and then there's the the CD baby um, your DIY. DIY, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been very yeah, good. Check that out, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good. So they had an episode. I would recommend listening to it with this woman, Kathy Heller, mm -hmm. and then from that I found out about her podcast. And so she's a singer songwriter in Los Angeles, and she makes her living writing songs that that are that are um, pitched and then. Uh, picked up for sync licensing. So she's had music in ads and film and things like that, but that's her thing. Mm -hmm. And she's been very successful at it. 
And um, she has this great podcast. And something that she says over and over again is like, um, is you're talking about dovetailing the passion and the income. Is that like, you know, we're so used to like telling ourselves in one way or another that I'm not going to make it because of this and I'm not going to do this and I have to resign myself to doing something I don't like. But actually, the people who are successful and do what they love all say that their biggest asset was actually that passion. Right. You know, and that's the biggest thing because that's the thing that's going to like, you know, keep keep you up late and wow. getting up early and all that yep. stuff. And that yep. that's what's something. So again, like kind of almost like a cliche thing, but very true. So so I did. Um, I took time. I actually did it on the train back and forth from work the last couple of weeks, and I wrote out my my marathon goals. Okay, and I cool. found it incredibly helpful. I still have to do that. <laughs> that, that yeah. Also, I find kind of hard to do that kind of stuff. Oh, it was yeah. so hard. I just yeah. like gritted my teeth and I was like, I even would like, um, I would like get a podcast. Like I love another podcast that I love is Mark Maron's podcast, WTF. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, love it. So I would find an episode that I really wanted to listen to and I wouldn't let myself start listening to it until I did yeah. this yeah. Um, Word document for 15 minutes. yeah. Um, which is the only thing like I learned like that, like from my parents, like, right, like right. okay, just whatever you don't want to do, do it first and then give yourself a little reward. Well, that also reminds you know? me of, of what you said about, you know, learning all the things you are in 12 keys before, before yes. you go to bed. <laughs> yes, totally. Totally. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Same, <laughs> same place comes from the same place. But, and, and, and so this woman, Kathy Heller had Ari Herstand on her podcast and he uh -huh. was really drilling the importance of doing these goals. And he said, listen, you should go back to them every year. They're gonna change. It's not about setting it out on day one and then achieving it in year 26. It's right. about having some kind of vision. Right. And it's funny, because I realized, I didn't know before I started doing that, that one thing that I really want to do that I've never done before is produce uh, music for right. other people. Right. I never even realized that. So I was like, wow. I didn't even realize that that's when I look, you know, if I have my ideal 26 years from now, one of the things that I'd be doing is, is being a producer. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I kind of worked it back and said, okay, well in the next year, I don't, I'm not setting a goal that I have to produce an album. I just want to find somebody who'll be willing to let me produce like a, even a song for them. That's it. And then, you know, after that I can, I can figure out how exactly I'm going to do that. But just having that, like, take, I, I wrote the 26 year part first, um, which he doesn't necessarily say to do, but then I kind of worked backwards from there. I felt like that would be the easiest way okay. to do it. And I found it really, really helpful. And and he says, print it out and tack it to your wall. And I'm like, I, that's what I did. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, <laughs> so, so, so to, just to, to, you know, um, to wrap up, I'm something practical. Yeah. Is, so I'll I'll let me invite you to my studio, and you can if if you want, <laughs> if you'd like, um, and you can you can you can help produce a track, um, if you'd like. Man, yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd, I'd love you know Absolutely. I'd love to collaborate with you anyway at some at some point. But this might be a good maybe I can help Let's you achieve Man, a life a life goal, and you know that's something that I you know that I've been doing for a while. You know, um, producing and and uh, you know getting the the. Um, engineering thing and the, you know this has become um you know the the studio is kind of an organically built even though i i've um 
you know, developed different skills over the years and apprenticed at recording studios and different things. But it, it's amazing to, that, that at some point, all the different things that, are, that you do during, over the course of many years kind of can coalesce in a, in a, um, and be able to use all these, these things that you picked up over the years. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, but that would be, that would be great. I would love to do that. Cool. So let's so let's uh, you know let's talk about when we can make that happen. Yeah, I would love uh, to. And and I'm also you're talking about the engineering um, mm -hmm. aspect of it. I I'm also like in the process of learning that in a in a uh, in a in a higher level than I've been able to do before. Um, yeah, it's I'm it's excited about it. It's one of those totally necessary and important and um, kind of force multiplying skills. I mean, it, it's it's yes. it improves your. I mean, one of the things that when I interviewed. Scott Hull, um, yeah, you know, for the, for this podcast that that um, he told me how one trains to become a mastering engineer. Wow, is um, he basically gave me the prescription, which is basically the, to set aside time to sit with index cards and listen to a huge variety of recordings. Not even the whole, not even the whole whole tracks, but just pieces of recordings where you're cataloging how different things sound in detail. Um, and he said, if you start doing that over a course of time, then you start to notice similarities between similar producers and engineers and how they do things and, um, you know, how certain snares sound and how they're panned wow. and how they're compressed and how, they, you know, it's like, um, so I, I found that, you know, it's, it, so that is obviously that's a musical skill. That's not, you know, but that's right, what, totally. that's really the engineering skill. It's so it's they're really the same, um, you know, different aspects of the same art. Yeah, yeah, so. that's amazing. You mean so like going through and saying like, oh, the bass sound on this Rolling Stones record is kind of similar to this other thing, and and making those connections. Right. Well, that that happens over time, but but yeah. I guess in the moment, it's like if you're let's say you're listening to the Rolling Stones record, that you're noticing that the bass is punchy and and you know it at I mean, he, he got into specific like decibel, you know, right, frequency, right, right, right. like right. at, at, at 2,600, you know, Hertz that like, th there's a little bit of a, of a peak, you know, like, right. I mean, but he, he, that's his, his years of experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he's amazing. Right. But so, so, he's but, so but amazing. that kind of thing, like in the high end there, there's a, you know, the bass is, you know, there, there's a way to, to describe the sound and, in, in whatever level, um, to right. be able to understand how it's recorded let alone musically the way it's being done. But, but obviously yeah. he's talking about in terms of the sound. Right, and right, the, right. Um, right. So yeah, there's so much to, so much to learn and it's like- Yeah, and you, uh, you said you've mastered a bunch of projects with him, right? I've, yeah, I've done um, a couple albums with him and then we just yeah. did the, the vinyl, um, which oh, great. is a really cool right, experience. Right, right. Awesome. Um, yeah, he's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. So, I'm just always blown away whenever I'm, you know. Oh yeah. Um, it's like he'll do something and he'll be like, how does that sound? I'll be like, it sounds amazing. I don't have any, I don't have any, you know, hints or notes for you. It sounds great. Just do your thing. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah. And he recommended, um, what was it? it was, so I, I really tried to press him on, uh, on, on specific stories. I mean, cause so uh -huh. many people have passed through his studio. Oh yeah. So he got, he, 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 he got around to that. He, he was speaking more general, but he, you know, he spoke oh, nice. about Donald Fagan and, and Robbie Robinson right, right. a little bit, but then, um, the one album I, I wrote, I wrote that the one album where that he, um, it was the Chicago transit authority. 
he said was a uh-huh. very influential album for him. So that, that's something that in terms of learning about the techniques, like listening to the album and 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 learning about why it sounded how it sounded. No, I think it was a formative album. I think it inspired him. <clears throat> yeah, you know, in terms of the sound of a record, what wow. a record could sound. Um, right. And then he described the experience of of listening to it recently after have, not having listened to it for decades with brand new, ear, you know, obviously brand new ears of, of right. decades of, of, of this kind of right, right, very high level engineering experience right. and hearing, you know, it a whole new way. Um, you know, that was, you know, so, but he, yeah, so that was something that I, I checked off to go and go and check out. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Um, but man, uh, John, I really, again, I really appreciate your time. I know that, um, I'm gonna have to edit this this interview. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but you know, there's a lot of a lot of great uh, other great moments, and I, you know, I really yeah, appreciate man, it's my you sharing. Thank and you so and, much and, and I'm yeah, and I definitely would love to collaborate with you, and you know, whatever capacity. Likewise. I'm always yeah. you know, I'm, um, you know, whatever comes up, whether it's if you're organizing a, um, an event and you need another band, you know, Brooklyn Jazz Warriors, or you 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 know, you need, need a sub on keyboard in one of your bands. Um, or in Giant 80 for, or, you know, or you just want to collaborate on something new, um, that, you know, invitation is wide open. So. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I would love to. Cool, man. So, I would love to. um, yeah, man. So let, let's be in touch. I, I, I yeah. hope that, you know, that this, this record release and everything you're doing with, um, the, you know, the band Zion 80. One more question I wanted to ask you actually. Yeah. So, so obviously Zion 80 is a takeoff of Africa 70. Thales. Right. And Egypt 80. Yeah. And Egypt 80, right? So w- yeah. why, so I understand Zion because it's Jewish theme, right. but why, why 80? Well, I went back and forth with Zorn when we did the first album and the first, the first, the first idea, I, I'm not so good with band names, although okay. I, I, I feel like I, I did well with Rashanim because it wasn't, especially that spelling of it, like it worked well and it didn't exist online when I found it. Okay. Um, so when I was thinking of, but I've uh, also, I told you the, the, um, the band when I was in high school was called Babyhead, So I definitely have like a checkered past as far as <laughs> band names. Um, but for Zion 80, I went back and forth on different things. And, um, I emailed Jerome one day and I was like, how about just calling it the Karlbach Fela project? And he was like, that's the worst name I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> He's like, you basically just took out all the mystery. There's no mystery. It's like, we're going to take the music of Kaubach and Fela and mash it together. And here it is, you know, and let alone like a lot of music we do now is not Kaubach or Fela. It's, I mean, not that we ever directly covered Fela, but it's, I do my own music. We have two albums, well, one album released and another one recorded and about to be released of Zorn's music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about actually doing, um, like Chabad Nagunam and other, other Jewish stuff, other, um, you know, things from other sources, things like that. So he was like, no, just come up with something else. So I, I, I was thinking of like, I, I think I thought of like Israel 12, cause it was 2012 or then, okay. um, Israel, um, whatever the, whatever the Jewish year <laughs> at okay. the time right, right. was and, and like nothing rang Listen. true. And it, and just using the word Israel and the band name, like n- not for any political reason, but it just didn't like, 
it either ended up sounding like a reggae band or like nothing. Okay. So then I was like, well, maybe I'll just keep 80. And then, and then I just went through, I was like, what's every like Jewish word I can think of. And then when I got to Zion, I was like, Zion 80, that has like a nice ring to it. And then I thought it's weird because the 80 is just because Fela formed Egypt 80 in 1980. <laughs> um, so I just kept that, but no other number I put after it sounded right to me. Uh-huh. And it was just that. And I emailed Zorn. I was like, Hey, how about Zion 80? He was like, that's a band name. It does sound right. And the, and then have you have you thought through or have the, you know the the gematria <laughs> uh, ramifications of that? I have not. Um, I did put. Is it? I think on the first album. Wait, hold on. I'm gonna get it. Yeah, I put a tzadi and a and a pay. Um. I guess that's just for Sion and, and yeah. 80, right? Mm-hmm. But beyond that, no. <laughs> I haven't. I should. Yeah, um, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I know a guy at 770 who would um, have a field day with that one. But Oh, great. No, awesome. well, I mean, what comes to mind, uh, you know, the obvious is the, is the eight part, you know, the eight... Um, Hanukkah, the miracles, the, the right, 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 eight, right, right, and right. then just time, as opposed to being like separately in eighty, but eight rather eight times ten, right, like the right, the right, right. You know, miracle of uh, of the eight, right, times ten, basically, right, right, and the whole thing about eight and you have being ten guys, right. you have ten people in the band, that's true, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and of eight being kind of like beyond, beyond physicality, yeah, I know there's a whole thing about that that's that's really powerful. So you have ten miraculous. Uh, musicians <laughs> yeah right <laughs> although it was very funny somebody sent me something recently where somebody wrote up a little thing and and it actually said in there that there were 80 people in the band <laughs> and i was like wow well that you... could be a that could be a goal <laughs> yeah it could be right right <laughs> that could be one of my marathon goals to add add 70 more people to the band also another, um, another thought is is and this um that the you know the that the kino Mashiach, you know that the harp, the harp of Mashiach uh-huh. would have. There's one um, source that says it would have eight strings. Oh, really? Another source that says it have it have ten strings. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. So if you, if you put those two sources together, yeah, you could have eighteen, yeah. or you could have yeah. eighty. <laughs> just think, just thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. that's yeah. very cool. I mean, and and you know, part of it was like I thought of like um, like you know the band Antibalas. Yeah, yeah. Like, I love the fact that it's like, I think it's a Spanish name. It means bulletproof, but they're an Afrobeat band. Right, right. And yeah, I thought about something like that, like, not at all, you know, what, like, or like um, Bill Laswell's project, Method of Defiance, uh-huh. which sounds like a metal or a punk band, but it's a reggae, a dub reggae thing. Right, right. Um, Being a little bit kind of, juxtaposed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But well, that's then what I kept, Jazz Warriors are. Uh-huh. Because it's it it sounds like it might be a straight ahead jazz band, right? Right, it's right, a, right. It's a you right. know a funk. <laughs> yeah, know, but I loved funk, you know. but I loved that when I heard it because yeah. it to me connected with like kind of jazz in a much wider sense than just genre. Right, like putting those two words together, like oh, jazz. Okay, like I love jazz, but most people don't. But it's like jazz warriors. Like what is that? That's cool. You know, it's like it to me has a ring of the jazz messengers in a way, but it's like, there's like a, there's like a weight behind it, you know? Well, thanks man. I mean, your, your, yeah. your, your new album's called Warrior, right? 
Yeah, Warriors. Yeah, Warriors. Yeah, that's what, okay. yeah, that's what oh. I was kind of like a working title, and then I didn't know if it was right. And then I started telling it to the to the uh, the band members, and they were like, "Yeah, that's cool." Yeah. Um, uh... Yeah, that's the word. I mean, as far as I know, that will be the title. That that's what I'm calling it. Um, but I love as far as the band name, like I, I love, you know, things with numbers in them, right, just right. whether it's like a Gamatri thing or whatever, like, and so, you know, I just kind of stuck with Zion 80. Oh, cool. Well, man, you yeah. should have a, yeah. only tons of success. Thank you. You too. And with love, the love of joy. label and studio oh, and everything. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, thank you. And thank so you. let's definitely be in touch. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I'll let you know when, when I get around to <laughs> yeah. this and, I'm putting it in launching the podcast in general. Yeah, please, um, please do. Hey man, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, likewise. Yeah, let's talk soon. Awesome. Okay, be well. You take care. Thank you, you too. Thank you for joining us. If you made it this far, uh, you're to be applauded. <laughs> that was quite a long conversation John and I had over two separate sessions. Seeing that you are one so invested, um, you must have some thoughts and some comments. We'd love to hear from you. Records at gmail.com. And again, you can go to patreon.com slash Records to support the podcast and get uh, a lot of unreleased and pre-release tracks, and there's some other opportunities for musicians and songwriters and anyone who wants to connect and talk about music and learn to grow as a musician, to become better people, to master the art, not only the arts of of music and, and other creative arts, but also the art of life. That being said, let's all remember that the abundant singing and playing of music will bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time.